I'm really excited about this podcast. You know, as I was reading over the intro, I just thought, why mess with a good thing? We first met Russell Davies about four years ago in Pocatello, Idaho, when we did a full project on him after being introduced to him by Jacqueline Carzosa, otherwise known as Brojack on Instagram, good friend of ours, an incredible human being who really has helped us with a lot of these projects and bringing us certain individuals that are professionals and great at what they do. So when we read over the intro, we realized that even though plenty had changed, including Russell now becoming a family man, there was a lot that we needed to keep in there. And why mess with a good thing? So we kept the intro the same. That's the editor's note. So if you hear it and you listen to it and you're like, I've read this before, it's because you have. So here it is. Battle is the most magnificent competition in which a human being can indulge. It brings out all that is best. It removes all that is base. All men are afraid in battle. The coward is the one who lets his fear overcome his sense of duty. Duty is the essence of manhood. General George S. Patton. The thinking man soldier is an interesting perplexity in the world of all things grunt. There are, for all intents and purposes, two types of infantrymen, although I'm sure many would argue for a third or fourth. Seemingly, you're either a body slayer born out of molten lava, ready to spray lead with each and every passing second, or you're the cerebral killer. Not always for the fight, but always understanding the necessity. I believe that Russell Davies would be described as more of the latter. The interesting conundrum amongst those two types of infantrymen is that neither one is necessarily superior to the other. There's a place for both types of warrior on the battlefield, and both are extremely effective within their skill sets. Russell Davies has taken lives in service of his country, and though that doesn't make him completely unique from other soldiers and Marines, it's the thought process. It was truly an incredible part of Russ's interview. There's the admittal of these actions and the reflection on those moments in time that's almost chilling. There's the sensitivity to life and the loss of life that makes one realize Davies didn't take killing lightly, but as a means of victory, survival, and defense of his brothers, and honestly, probably more of the two latter. There's also the Russell Davies, the Pocatello-born bull rider, boxer, and sponsored adventure athlete. It's important to understand the foundation of the man. There's the rest that got kicked out of high school for his role in a brutal brawl a month before his graduation. There's a rest that's about as tough and blunt as any soldier could be. There's the rest that instinctually dragged his brothers to safety. His automatic weapons fire litter the ground around him in a fashion that would send most in the fetal position. There's a squad leader whose first reaction to a Taliban-led ambush in the mountains of Afghanistan was to immediately emplace covering fire until all his men were safe. This approach to life is what truly makes Davy such an incredibly sharp weapon for the United States Army, specifically the 101st. You know, I think about these things a lot with the greatest generation specifically. Where did they come from? What brought them here? How were they so well wrought for that moment, for that specific sample of time and what they did for this country? So the foundation is incredibly important in understanding who Russ Davies really is. And now, Russell Davies, 
the servant-minded, guiding wounded veterans through adventure therapy in a way that truly leaves them with the priceless gift of lifetime skill sets. You know, the way that I said that in the intro, I don't know if it makes it sound cheesy, but when I read it, it doesn't really do justice to the experience, to what Russ really does. When we first had a phone conversation about four years ago, it was incredibly powerful because I told him, what are you doing that's different than this organization or that organization? He said, well, I think one of the first things he said was, well, I'm not looking for one-offs. I'm looking to give people a skill set. I'm looking to send them home and for them to keep learning. And that is really the powerful part of the experience for me. It's not to say that one-off organizations that don't have a place, but to watch Russ continue to place himself in people's lives and to really lean in and not only give them the skill set, but help them absorb the things that make them better at what they're doing. It's truly incredible to see that value that he adds to everyone else's life is what makes Russ such an incredibly caring individual. But I've already said enough, as always. Without further ado, here he is, the one and only, Russell Davies. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project podcast where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always with me. Good friend of the project right here, Russ Davies. Russ, good yeah, to have you, man. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Good to see you guys again. It's been too long, so. Been way too long. Yeah, excited to have you guys here and yeah, hopefully this turns out all right. <laughs> we'll see. We'll just go for it and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we might regret everything. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> that's like uh, it's like what you do in, in sports, though. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> for sure. It all comes together in the end. No matter what it is, we'll just work with what we got. I guess that's just the plan. <laughs> that's the theme. <laughs> yeah. Russ, uh, you know, as we do with all these pro- projects and podcasts, we go back through your life, talk about where you came from and uh, how you got to where you are now. So we wanted to go back through your life and and talk a little bit about growing up and what brought you onto the track for the Army. So what was that like growing up for you, and and where did you grow up? Yeah, absolutely. Growing up, I was born and raised here in Pocatello, Idaho, a small-town community. Extremely outdoorsy. had some great parents growing up. I was pretty much involved in almost any sport that I could possibly get involved in. We were always camping, rafting. My dad started kayaking. I got involved in that pretty heavily. But aside from that, you know, I played football, basketball, baseball, boxing, everything that, everything that I could, even bull riding, you know, anything that I wanted to do. My parents were always huge supporters of letting me, letting me allow me to do that and uh, had a great upbringing. And then right around when I was about 14 years old, my parents ended up getting separated, which was definitely a, a little bit hard in the beginning. I was on schedule to graduate from high school. I was about two months out to fully understand and from graduating. And uh, unfortunately, I got into a little altercation with another gentleman. 
Yeah. You're being very nice right Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for, for lack of better words. But yeah, so me and this kid, we had some words and we decided to go off the of school campus during lunch and uh, throw some fists. When we got to this location, he actually brandished a knife on me, uh, which in, you know, natural reaction, just grabbed his wrist, headbutted him, went down. It's not a natural it. reaction for some people. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people get stabbed. <laughs> right, yeah. And that, that's that's how I looked at it, ultimately. So once I gained control of his wrist and I socked him a few times on the ground, I went back to school and I had carpooled with a buddy over there. So I just tossed the knife in his truck, went back to class like nothing had happened and then got pulled out of class. And uh, that guy went to the hospital for some facial tissue damage and concussion. And that was right when they implemented the you know, zero tolerance policy. If you fought, mm. you were, you were gone. And so I found out really rapidly they were planning on making an example of me. Mm. That's we, weird though. I don't even think about that in Idaho that there's a zero tolerance. Right? I thought out of any place, it's like, all right, guys, we're going back to the alley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to settle this the man way. <laughs> For sure. And, that, and that's kind of how I always looked at it too. You know I mean? They always talked about it, but this was definitely not my first, uh, scuffle okay for sure. you had a record yeah exactly they were well aware but it, it was super unfortunate because they, they said basically you're going to be expelled however you'll go in front of the board and they'll see if they decide you deserve a second chance my family my school teachers my coaches everybody thought there was no way i mean what are you supposed to do when another person pulls a knife on you and just stand there and get stabbed or or what, you know, so right. it was, uh, it was a little difficult for sure, but I went in front of the board, had a bunch of teachers show up, my parents and whoever the district, you know, 25 president was of the board was like, everybody here thinks you deserve a second chance, but I don't. So find, find yourself. District 25 school. president. We're still looking for Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Same one day. Well, it's all right. I feel like I'm laughing now, but that was pretty hard for sure. Cause like I said, in, in order to go to a different district, that's like picking up and moving there. There's only one district here in the small town of Pocatello. So it was a devastating blow. I was, I was 16, 17 years old at the time and Jeez. didn't really know what I was planning on doing with my life and felt like a failure and stuff like that. Watching everybody else graduate and I was working at Grease Monkey, changing oil on cars. Nothing wrong with day. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you did want to yeah. graduate. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. My mom was struggling a bit financially for sure. And, and that was hard to, to see, you know, raising three boys by yourself is definitely a struggle. So I really wanted to help her out and, and definitely prove that I wasn't a failure. And so I decided I was going to join the military. Me and a handful of buddies had, had talked about it before. A buddy of mine named Andy Harris, Josh Quick and Chad Cook. We all went into the recruiting office and trying to do this buddy program that they supposedly had. And we're told, yes, I, I definitely wanted to be on the front lines, but I can remember like going into the recruiting office and being like, I'm here to join the army. And he's just, okay, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I just told you the army. <laughs> you know, like, that's about how kill, much I kill knew people. About it. Yeah. I was just like, I had no clue that there was like different jobs and stuff like that. It just goes to show how much I knew yeah. what I was getting myself into. And, you know, I did the whole thing, went down the list, watched these super hoo videos of every job. But ultimately, I wanted to be infantry. I wanted to be on the front lines. I wanted to see what was really going on overseas. Of course, that was right when we were in the middle of a conflict, 2006. I tried to get my mom to sign a waiver allowing me to go at 17. She was like, I think you can wait. She definitely was not so like, I'm not signing my yeah. life, my son's yeah, life. Away. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I did. And then right upon turning 18, went and signed the papers, maps, all that. And that's the whole start of, you mm. know, where the, the military 
kind of comes into play. Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, you and I were on the same track because I was 17 in 2005, and that's what I said. And my parents, uh, unlike your mom, were like, oh, yeah, great. We'll sign right away. Yeah. yeah. Bye. My father definitely would have uh, jumped at the opportunity yeah. for sure. That wouldn't have been an issue, but, Your but mom. unfortunately, yeah, he wouldn't do that. He yeah. wouldn't do, go behind my mom's back to, to allow me to do it. So I get that. Yeah. It was, it was pretty, pretty big wake up call. You think life's rough yeah. a little bit living under your parents' rules and your teachers and your coaches until you, you know, meet a drill sergeant and yeah. you're not getting any sleep. You can't even go to the bathroom when you want to, you're getting your ass kicked yeah. pretty much daily. There was definitely some moments for sure, I think, in basic training and stuff and AIT that I was like, man, I think I made a mistake. But <laughs> Me <laughs> look, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, you know, like at the time they were doing like a minimal three years active contract and I decided to go that route specifically just to see if it was the right fit for me or not. So I knew I could at least make it that far. <laughs> I could at least put in the three. Let me ask you this. Was there any kind of preconceived ideas of you've been pretty patriotic your whole life? Was there a community surrounding that or was that just the next step for you in life where you felt like I got to get out of here? I got to change my direction, my path. What right. was that for you? Uh, yeah, you know, I had a good buddy named Ryan Colleen that was an outstanding individual and he was National Guard, but he'd already been on deployment and stuff like that. Uh, and he's the one that really knew who I was and kind of like was like you're born and bred for infantry. So I had a good amount of friends that had done it and, and always just thought it seemed humbling to be able to walk around in a uniform for your country. Yeah. And so without a doubt, my grandparents were all in the military. My dad wasn't, but there was no, no conflicts at those times. There wasn't really a calling at that point. So there was definitely, you know, like Pocatello, it's farming community, big rodeo, country boys, patriotic, diehard Americans. It, it definitely played a huge role in, in pushing me in the right direction, but I think mainly it was the friends that I had already talked to. And we thought with everything that your recruiter tells you that we'd be able to go through everything together. But we quickly realized that we didn't even go through basic together. We all got put in different divisions and different units across the nation. Wait, um, you're saying that, are you saying that your recruiter lied to you? Yeah, it's like a crazy thing. I don't think anybody's <laughs> ever heard of that before. But yeah, ultimately, without a doubt. Anyway, so yeah, I got stationed with the 101st Airborne Charlie Company, 3187 okay. Infantry Regiment. The Rakasans, uh, great, really great unit. unit. Yeah, for sure. I was extremely excited. I guess basically at that that age, all I knew was like, what's the coolest looking patch? That's how I always like. They've to got determine. a cool patch. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I was I was extremely excited to finally get to my uni. I quickly realized that this is a lot better than basic training in AIT for sure. You know, you're respected and and you get a little bit of leeway. Was um, there were there any wake up calls for you? And you said there were definitely those moments where you. We're wondering, like, is this for me? I think that happens to everybody, especially anybody who realizes the decision they made has any logic or common sense. Like, oh, this is actually really serious, you know? Right. And I had those moments for sure. I hope nobody sees these tears coming out. Of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm 17. For I'm just sure. a boy. <laughs> for sure. But yeah. the ceremony and the blue cord and everything like that when, you know, you're graduating, basically. I mean, this is the first time I ever graduated something, you yeah, know, I, yeah. I had missed it. So my, all my parents and stuff came out. I was extremely proud of that moment and, and felt I'd redeem myself. Once, once I got with my unit, yeah, and we were just, it's insane the amount of training that, yeah. that we were doing with, you know, 3rd Battalion, 101st was just like every day. It's crazy when you look around and soon you're like, man, should I have went infantry? Everybody else has got four day weekends. We're lucky if we even get a weekend. We're always out in the field nonstop training, but 
Yeah, I th- I think at that age, I think it was pretty eye opening. But being extremely physically fit, and this is what I was good at. You know, I went from getting in trouble for fighting, and now I'm getting paid to do it. So <laughs> that was that always just seemed to make sense in my mind. It all just seemed great. They're gonna pay me um, for this. Yeah, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you're you were what 19 by then? No, I was still 18. Yeah, because I joined pretty much right on like my birthday in 2006. Yeah. So I was still 18 and we were getting our, we got orders to go to Iraq for a 15 month deployment. And I guess that's probably one of the biggest wake up calls is you realize the training is training, but it's about to be real. You go from stabbing lifelike looking silhouettes with bayonets and, and realistic looking moving targets and stuff like that, that I think is, they are good at what they do. They can yeah. definitely train the mind and body to react under scenarios without a second thought going through your mind. Yeah. Which I think is essential, but I think when you retrain the mind like that, you definitely breed a different type of person. It just goes forth with why a lot of people struggle yeah. drastically after the military. When that becomes your entire mentality, shoot, shove, shoot to kill is the mentality. So. That's an interesting thing. You're stripped of all those ideals going in of who you are, and then they break you down and they build you back up into a soldier. But you were a fighter at your foundation. You had that fighting. I mean, who bull rides? Like, not very many people. (laughs) Like, you you were into the extreme stuff. You were into that. So, foundationally, that was a part of who you were probably already. For sure. So, it felt like something probably you already knew, but they were teaching you in a different way, right? Right. And I, yeah, 100%. Totally agree with that because... I think the more that you are adapted to being able to operate under extremely like strenuous scenarios is it definitely a, a comes into play when you're in combat or in training or anything like that. Being able to operate, some people when their adrenaline kicks in almost just freeze up and then there's others that almost operate on a superhuman level Yeah, once everything hits the fan. Yeah. So, so you got tasked out for a 15-month deployment to Iraq. Right. And what was it like when you first hit the ground? What were you, what was your mission? Your guys' mission over there? Yeah. I guess they, they never really brief you on, you're like, you're thinking like Normandy. Yeah. Like you're thinking like the, you're going to be lucky if your plane touches down and you're able to get off. And as soon as you do, bullets are going to start flying and you're just going to be fighting from day one. So it was a little bit crazy to see like the transition, getting ready to go over there and you're waiting on a flight line and then you land in like Germany and then to Kuwait and you do like two weeks in Kuwait and then over to a giant base out there in, in Baghdad and you land thinking like this is like hot spot. You're going to be under enemy fire, but it's not. Everybody's chill. Nobody's wearing a uniform. Barely anybody's even got a firearm on them. Yeah. And yeah, it was definitely a little bit crazy considering I thought it was going to be really intense right out of the gate, but yeah. it takes a month to even get to. Your little tiny outpost, and we were out in Fabu Sophia, which was considered the the t- triangle of death. That's all we had heard. It was definitely crazy just to see how chill it was, just getting to your yeah. to where you're going to be sleeping in these tents and setting up your cop, and then you do your right hand, left hand drives, and you mm-hmm. get like familiar with the area. I don't think it had fully set in until we were out on a pretty routine patrol. I mean, basically, our mission was strictly come in contact with the enemy and killer capture. And so we had this zone that we would continually travel and we were trying to push the bubble out, build up Iraqi army, like fighting positions, checkpoints, stuff along those guidelines. And, you know, that first month we we were there, one of the vehicles hit a catastrophic IED, killed 
all four of the people in the vehicle. Wow. And I think that's probably like the craziest point in, in a young mind is you go out there with 32 guys in a platoon, you just lost five in the first month, you got 15 months to go. I'm only infantry, but if you do the math on that, you're quite aware that there's probability you might not be going home. Yeah. So that was definitely a little bit difficult to grasp the concept of, and these guys become your family and you just lost five of them. So those five guys, did you know them? To a certain extent, they were all in the same company because it was a, a battalion patrol. So I knew them a little bit. They weren't directly with our platoon, but yeah, it was, I definitely knew them. One of them was a female, which is extremely hard. You have like the mentality that everybody signed up on the dotted line and you knew that this was definitely going to be a possibility, but when it becomes real and you knew the individuals and you're there on scene and watching a burning vehicle with people in it is crazy. And it just makes you go numb in a sense. It, it changes your whole, like you're made out of your 10 feet tall and bulletproof to this could have been me. It could have been any of our vehicles in that convoy. You realize your mortality really quickly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Bullets fly straight. So it's any of those can, can pierce you at any point. And so I, in, in, in every aspect, it, I think it honestly makes a better soldier. Once, once you open your mind to that and you become numb and you're aware that you might not make it home, it kind of just puts everything into perspective to where you're going to fight yeah. for until your last breath. Yeah. So that was definitely pretty difficult. And, and in the midst of this, you know, you have all these soldiers that are going through chaotic times. You know, I had dated a girl all through high school. We'd planned on, we talked about the military. It was the next step. We thought it'd be great for us. We were going to build a future. But you're 18 at the time, so you have no idea, but. I remember like the first phone call I got home was like, I was like, ah, should I call my lady? Should I call my parents? I was like, I'll call my parents first. And you got five minutes. So just to give them my mailing address and get some goods on the way. And I just remember my dad being like, are you, are you still dating that girl? And I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, of course. I knew her family. They knew my family. We were, we have been together for a while and he's like, oh yeah, I'm sorry to tell you she's cheating on you. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what are you going to high school parties, pops? I'm keeping up on the 411. He's Down monitoring like, the situation, yeah, bro. Exactly, he's looking dude. out for his son. Good looking out for sure. But his buddy was a police officer and she was in the car with some other dude fooling around when the cop pulled up because they thought it was an altercation and they were talking about it and he ended up dropping the name of who it was. And I was like, oh man. And that's a heavy hit too. You're going through a, a whole lot of things. You woke up to the uh, Jody story. Real yeah, quick. exactly, dude. <laughs> exactly. And you're warned about that nonstop. And it's easy to see why these guys that were married and stuff like that. It's not like you ever had time to, to hang out with your family. Even when you're in garrison training, like you're never home. You know, yeah. you're there from four in the morning till eight o'clock at night. And so there's no wonder why the divorce rate's so high. I just, I'm still pretty set that like a family is like the last thing I would have ever wanted. Mm-hmm serving overseas. I always thought about that, man, because I think it was Patton that said it, uh, war is a young man's game. And that's the truth and reality of it. When you get over there, I remember always thinking about my guys. I was like, how can you possibly fight at a level of a single soldier who knows like, this is it. If, if my parents lose me, that'll be sad. Right. But if my wife or kids lose me, I don't see how you could fight as hard. Right. So I, I felt, I always told my guys who are married, I'm like, man, I'm looking out for you, dude. It'll be me that right. takes it if right. I have to. Right. I mean, if, if I'm gone, I'm just gone. It's just for me. Sure. You know, my parents will cry a little bit and then yep. they'll be like, all right, we're, we've got other kids. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. We'll be okay. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that. I had the same mentality entirely. It was just like, if I end up losing my life over here, you got your $500,000 life insurance. My mother's my primary. The whole goal was to help her out and try to like jumpstart my life and stuff. So 
my sister my used to send okay. my sister used to send me letters like joking about my this is so morbid but typical army humor but <laughs> right about my dad like plotting with terrorists in the area to get me killed <laughs> <off. laughs> so they could get the, the interest for sure <laughs> that's a lot of money bro I know. that's that's exactly <laughs> that's how tempting. i look at it too yeah so all those things like they come into a key factor but like you said it is hard to think about having a family because you know the ideas keep pushing instead of play it safe try to hang back and and ultimately come out and one day or get back to the States would be a hard thing to do with a family back at home that calls you dad and, and is relying on you being there. Yeah. But yeah, it's there's just a lot going on over there and just so many more things than just the combat that are playing like a, a key role in how you are going through everyday life. One of the guys that I joined with, he was 33 and I thought that was like insane. We were both privates. His name was Chris Bales, great friend of mine. I was pretty shook up after losing those five and they just losing my girl and things like that. You're 18 years old, man. You got your whole life. Like, I assure you, everything's going to be fine. And he was one of those guys. He had a whole family and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's, it, it was pretty crazy. You go from training to to fully utilizing, like, your weapon on in, in firefights and stuff along those guidelines. But it, there was definitely, like, a sense of security in, in Iraq because you had so much support. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like there Close was air a, support's, yeah, like, 10 minutes on standby. Other companies in the area, easy mortars. There's always birds in the air flying above you. The contact over there was more like five-minute firefights before they would either pop smoke or you might get a few of them. And so... Yeah, what was that action, first of all, where you're getting into a firefight and you're really having to utilize your weapon and think about that action? It's just instinctual by then. Was it? And was it for you? I, I strictly remember like one scenario where we were building up like a fighting position for the Iraq army at the point. And so we had some engineers out there. They were putting up one of those giant concrete towers and building, you know, some HESCO barriers. And we'd probably been out there for four or five hours. And pretty soon everybody's starting to get lax. Like we got our helmets off. We're sitting on the top of Humvees, like bullshitting, smoking. And uh, yeah, we were just chilling there when all of a sudden we got lit up by some heavy machine gun fire all over the Humvee that we, we were in. And react to combat, we start bounding towards where we were taking fire from. And I just remember plugging away with my M4 in the direction of the fire when my team leader at the time was like, what the hell are you doing? You have a 203. Utilize that. Like Get what, grenades, what that, yeah, bro. Like, why are you using an M4 when you have a grenade launcher attached <laughs> to your rifle? And I'm like, dude, I want PID before I start lobbing 40 mics across across the field into a, a city but yeah i just as soon as that machine gun burst went off let's just started lobbing grenades in that area and then we moved into to the compound and i just remember coming face to face with like this old cheek with my gun like right in his face being like it's just a dude and yeah he went off on his own direction we cleared the compound we'd killed two in the area one of them was the machine gunner but yeah it's definitely crazy the first time that you're looking at at a dead body that was most likely taken by your hands at 18 years old, 18, 19 years old. It's kind of crazy that in the grand scheme of things, that's pretty much all you can do at 18 now. Even tobacco, you have to be 21 these days. Even to drink, anything along like remotely being considered responsibility other than the military, <laughs> other than going overseas and fighting other combatants in, in human warfare is... Then it, you can kill yeah, human beings. Yeah, you're old enough to do that, but to smoke or drink, let's just toss that out of the window. You're not mature enough for that. <laughs> yeah, it's heavy hitting, but luckily I'd made it through that deployment. Everybody was divorced and lost their significant other. Jeez. It was just insane. I should not be laughing, like, but... Yeah, even my buddy Bales, like he had a family of four and his wife and stuff like that. Like we were like a month away from going home and 
Jeez. he got the news and stuff. So it was just crazy. So you, then you get back and you have this mentality of basically drinking and fighting is all you do <laughs> on your free time. You go out with those, your brothers and sisters and you got each other's back. Everybody's struggling with some heavy situations and reintegrating back into a completely different life that you were living 15 mm -hmm. months ago. In a society that crazy. now punishes you for those same things right. that they turned you into, right? Right, Violence. exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy. How, how long but, were you back when you got back from that deployment yeah. before you went again? Yeah, so we were back 15 months after and we, I'd moved up the ranks. I became a sergeant. I got a squad started training these guys for whatever's to come next. And at that time there was stop loss, which I was firmly aware that I was going to be stop lost. Even in Iraq, I had guys that were supposed to get out right before that or in the midst of it that were, that were all stop lost needs of the army. Uh, we had got our orders pretty much for 10 months after we had returned to leave for Afghanistan. I was already certain I was going to be stop lost. Yeah. I'm training these eight guys under me to everything that I've learned, you know, overseas to get ready for combat. And that's right when President Obama was elected for being the U.S. president. And one of the first things he did actually was abolish stop loss. Mm. So I had the entire mentality that I was going for sure. And two months before, they're like, sorry, this is the way it goes. That was your active contract. And I thought about it, but there's just no way when you're training people that were just in your boots two years ago that are relying on you and, and they put all their future basically in your hands to make sure that they come back home. Mm -hmm. There was no way I could turn my back on them. So, you know, I was just like, what do I got to do to be able to go minimum reenlistment two years, signed up for another two years to go over to Afghanistan. I want to go back to that first deployment because there was a story you'd mentioned in the project where you realized the complexity of what you were battling overseas in Iraq. And the complexity of the culture and all that and coming in contact with some of the Iraqi military and then seeing how they handled things right over yeah. there. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think you yeah, probably know sure. which story I'm going to. Definitely aware yeah. of, of what you're referring to. Yeah. Mine I mean, like a steel trap, dude. Right. I don't forget <laughs> yeah, it. No, good on you, dude. Yeah, because I guess I skipped right over that. But yeah, that is definitely one of the big things when you go over there is here in the U.S., you have local law enforcement, you can call if things go array and stuff along those guidelines out there, you know, it's the wild west. There is no police. And because we were attached and our primary, you know, goal was to eventually get the Iraq army capable of holding down Fabio Sophia on their own without U.S. presence. We basically were told that we're operating under their rules of engagement, which is loose. Like some of these guys. You're like, I don't even, I don't think any of these guys have had any type of training. You know what I mean? Their weapons are always on fire. They're having negligent discharges left and right. If they work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it was pretty crazy, but there was a, a point where I was pulling guard duty in the tower right by the, the entry control point, And this car just comes rolling in and couldn't tell who it was. They weren't obviously stopping. They weren't allowing anybody to get checked in. I remember the, the, the specialist that was on duty with me at the UCP just standing there watching this car get closer and we'd been trained for this stuff so i started shouting and waving and trying to get this car to stop this car wasn't stopping like fired fired around in its direction just to give it a warning shot and this the specialist is just looking at me like stargaze no no clue like what to do and it wasn't stopping so i ended up opening up with like a three-round burst on the vehicle hit the vehicle it flipped around and left and ieds and suicide bombers were extremely prominent. That was a really high way of them trying to get a few casualties and only take out one of their own. That was a bad year for that. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
the the next thing, and I wasn't on the ECP at this time, they'd had a woman that had came to the ECP. And obviously we have the mandatory, like only females can search females. And so they were holding her there at the ECP, the highest ranking commander of the Iraqi army there walked out and like, oh no, it's okay, it's okay. Basically just blew us past, walked her into their compound and she detonated herself, killed like three of three of those like high ranking officers. Oh my gosh. That were surrounding her, which was crazy because the next day they're looking serious. They're like actually wearing their gear, like they're ready to go on mission. We get attached to them to go out there with them to this compound in which they knew the family of the woman that blew herself up. Um, and her, his brother was actually a high ranking commander as well on the Iraqi army. And we got there and there's a lot of shouting and like just total chaos of stuff that you're like, man, is this okay? In your mind, you're like, this doesn't fly. Yeah. People are just getting the piss kicked out of them. People are getting butt stroked and jumped by four of the Iraqis army. And eventually they took two or three of these individuals out on the side of the road and executed them right there in the road. And at that point, you're like, should I intervene at this point? I know that we we are told this is their show. We're just along for the ride. But that was just just sheer insanity. Watching somebody that isn't armed, isn't a combatant, just their life's taken for the actions of somebody else, not knowing if they how much that they had to do with any of it, whether she operated on her own and things along those guidelines. That's just that was just sheer chaos. That just plays a role in your mind forever seeing something like that and wondering, should I have stopped this? But there's no investigation leading up right. to that. Yeah. Oh yeah. The Iraqi army gets to get, this is their country. They get to do whatever they want to do. If that's how they delegate their tasks, that's how they delegate it. And judge jury like, executioner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just like a whole different world. over. Did there that mess that with your mind a little bit for. in the moment? Did that mess with you for a while where you thought about that scenario and situation? I know obviously you can't react because that's right. You're in their territory and that's, you, you, I'm sure you question things at the moment. We're like, you're, we're not helping good guys. Here. Right. What are we doing exactly? Like how much can you trust these people? Yeah. Which was definitely a worry. You're sharing a compound with these guys. You know nothing about them and then seeing them operate that way. It is definitely crazy. We, I can remember many a night sitting there talking about it on pulling guard duty and stuff like that. Like, holy hell, dude, what are we doing here? Is this right or wrong? In the same circumstance, you definitely know that lady could have detonated the bomb right next to the ECP, killed some of our guys. That could have been who planted the IED. And so in the weird way, no matter what, you'll come up with a way to to definitely almost justify yeah. the incident just because bottom line is you want to go home. You want to make it back home. Yeah. Yeah. And that kicked off a whole series of, of crazy events from the Iraqi armies being off and out in town and they would come back or be dropped off and severely tortured and, and mutilated and killed. It just like totally flipped everything that we were doing to, to having almost like a good standing with the local population there to they hated us and didn't want anything to do with us, especially after that. So yeah, it was definitely a wake up call, but that is interesting. Yeah, the like, whole battle hearts and minds and right. how much really, how much of that is imperative, you know, because I go back between thinking, well, an area probably needs to become ground glass, you know, you know, like yeah. we got to destroy this whole area and start over. Basically. Yeah. Everything that you thought you'd be doing there, constant skirmishes and stuff like that. It'd be weeks you'd go without 
receiving any type of contact. Yeah. But to, like I said, try and I never would have thought like our mission was some of the missions we'd go on these coin operations were play, basically like paying the sons of Iraq that are on these checkpoints to supposedly guard this road to make sure that no IDs will be placed on it to, and you see that and you're like really wondering, you're like, how much are these guys actually doing to secure this road? Or are we actually just paying the family that has been planting these bombs a, a portion of, of money in trade to not do it anymore? Yeah. So it is, it's just so weird. You, you start to really wonder, what are we doing? What is your mission out there? Like there is no end goal. There's no, oh, this is an enemy fortified position. This is what we got to conquer. We're going to go in their guns blazing too. Going out to like chicken farms with some doctor that's giving like immunizations to like chickens, trying to help like the local population. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, you, you definitely want to help out there. Seeing people living under those situations and that type of poverty is just mind-blowing. Like you have it so good here yeah. and there, there's no running water. Everything's fished out the side. These people are going with legitimately nothing. It almost gives you a respect for the fighting forces over there as well because you got to have a lot of balls when we show up there and MATVs and, and night vision and these all these weapons and helicopters and tanks and stuff like that. You're like, who would actually want to grab their dusty old AK and go to combat against a fighting force that has been 100% trained for this with all this backup support and stuff like that is just, you kind of got to get tip your hat to be like, man, dude, you want to, that's walking into a, a gunfight with your fists. Like being <laughs> like, all right, let's go. Like, I feel like it, this might work out. So yeah. Yeah, that, that is interesting, man. I, I've thought about that in yeah. similar scenarios. Where it's, what, are you brave or are you insane? Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> to want to attack this right. machine, this industrial yeah. complex, this United States Army. Yeah. You're going to come out here and attack us with your dusty <laughs> right. AK, lob a couple rockets at us and hope for the best. <laughs> right, for sure. For sure. And then when you see, if you find out who it is and apparently their family the, the Iraqi army will, you, you know, come execute, yeah. you know, you. Kill everybody. It, yeah. yeah. And so it's just, it's so crazy. It's just a, a mindset that you thought you were ready for, but there's just no way to pre prepare for those types of situations. Just no way. How did your mind shift when you came back from Iraq that first time and now all of a sudden you're in a leadership position? You're responsible for other lives, right? Because in right. a way... You're still responsible for your guys over there, even when you're not in leadership. You do take on these natural leadership positions at points, but now you're a leader. You're in a squad leader position. How heavily did that weigh on you, knowing that you're going to be over these guys and responsible for their lives going into Afghanistan? Massively, for sure. At the end of the day, there really is no way of guaranteeing 100% that all these people are coming back. And you're meeting young privates that just got out of you know basic training that are, like I said, in your shoes. Uh, a long time ago that, you know, a lot of these guys do have families and their wives are telling you every time you guys have a little squad get together, barbecue off time, please just make sure he comes back home. That's definitely heavy. There was no way to really mitigate the first people we lost in Iraq. This IED, two, I mean, two vehicles rolled over the same IED and just happened to hit that one. So there is just no way of having 100% certainty that you're going to be able to bring them back. But they honestly become like your son, you're trying to teach them every single thing. And then you, you quickly realize like the responsibility that was on like your team and squad leaders and platoon sergeants and stuff like that. And just the bullshit nonsense of making sure that they're squared away and their packing list is complete. 
but yeah, you, you train every day, you know, and you're only as fast as your slowest guy and everybody like pulls their own weight. And you really get like such a tight knit bond formed that losing any of them and having to come back and have to speak to their wives and family and stuff like that would just be something that that you're fully aware of could possibly happen but there's just no way to to get your mind to that point so you're hard on them for sure that the, the possibility of somebody losing their life over there is definitely possible and so you know you just you're really hard you push hard you train them as hard as you can you try and get them to be as physically fit mentally prepared and things along those guidelines share some stories and, and make sure that they're they're where you were capability wise before you leave so that's that's hard to get used to because you are ultimately who they look up to so you realize that this isn't no longer just showing up and, and being a private and listening to do this do that and things like that to being like that figure that they're trying to learn every detail of how you operate and the standards that you hold yourself to and so that's basically in a nutshell you're pretty much talking about the, the the brothers and sisters that you grew up with your entire life that's how much you care about these guys and knowing that the possibility that they could lose their life is is theirs is hard to get ready for yeah so when you step into the squad leader position how old were you when you came into that position i, I was 21 years old at that finally time. old enough to drink yeah yeah <laughs> and evidently lead a squad drink. of men into yeah, battle exactly exactly <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, I know it was right around that time frame because like right around the time we got back from Iraq, I had turned 21 mm. and we went out to the bars and got a little tuned up mm. and ended up getting into, getting into a scuffle and I hit this guy and it broke his jaw and luckily he was also, you do you some know, damage, man. Yeah. You got some yeah, heavy was, fists, bro. It was pretty bad for sure. <laughs> we were out drinking and this dude started having words. I only legitimately only hit the guy one time, Yeah, but he was out. You hit him in the right spot. <laughs> and pretty soon, like, all the bouncers are jumping in. Everybody from your platoon's jumping in. It's turned into a full bar rumble. And my buddy's, like, dragging me away and, like, just run, dude. Just run. Let's get the hell out of here. So we <laughs> we bail and woke up the next day. Not really 100% of what had happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. Until uh, a detective, a private detective, knocked on my door. Uh -huh. I was like, uh, you Russell Davies? <laughs> you, yeah. So the, this guy was looking to avidly pursue charges and my company was well aware of it luckily like the the entire legal system hadn't been implemented i had people from his whatever battalion he came from hitting me up being like oh we're gonna find you and jump you and blah 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 and yeah and, and luckily, they loved you like, yeah exactly <laughs> back then yeah. there was myspace uh, <laughs> and i got lucky like his wife was supposed to fly back to germany uh where he, the guy was actually stationed in the first place and she had to miss her flight that night Mm -hmm. And they just stopped in there for a beverage when we got into our, our skirmish. So they were going to take me to small claims court over the ordeal and stuff like that, looking to throw the book at me. But luckily his wife actually did some stalking on his behalf and looked up my Facebook and saw like my family photos and was like, I don't think this guy is a bad person. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we should avidly pursue this. And, and so we started finally messaging back and forth and decided to link up. And I told him, I'll pay you some restitution. You got to drink through a straw for the next three or four months. So you're your going to have to pay some restitution. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so luckily we were able to handle it completely like off the books yeah. and, you know, got away with that. But that's how I know <laughs> that I was 21 at that time. <laughs> and so luckily, cause who knows what could have happened. I could have possibly been demoted or anything along those guidelines, but yeah, yeah I was 21 
all the way that whole year but in, until Afghanistan. Yeah. What was your idea of leadership going into that? You obviously had some pretty good leaders going into Iraq or, or did you? And where did you form your idea of leadership and how you were going to handle your guys? Yeah, without a doubt, I had an amazing squad leader and team leaders in Iraq, 100%. I feel like without a doubt, we are by far the most squared away squad in the platoon. Probably the company, we were super squared away. Everybody was extremely physically fit. We held ourselves to a different standard than a lot of other people did. But Sergeant Jennings, who was my squad leader, outstanding individual. And he also, you know, when we had got back from Iraq, was moved to uh, second platoon when I was in first platoon as a platoon sergeant. And so he went up, I lost him, I took his position. And I went to WLC or Warrior Leaders course. And it was outrageous because my truck, I had, it just broke down. Like it snapped an axle shaft. It was in the shop. I was like, can we just wait for the next one? The new platoon sergeant was like, yo, no, you're going. We'll sign this guy to pretty much be your chauffeur, mm-hmm. which I thought was insane. I'm like, wait, you're going to allow this guy like a free haul pass just to be like my daily driver for a week? <laughs> Do I get my truck back? <laughs> How does that make any sense instead of just allowing me to take the next class? Yeah. And so I get there to, to WLC and they do ask the question, if you have any outstanding issues or anything going on in, on, in your life right now that could jeopardize this, like we give zero, there's no way of them giving any type of leniency there. If you're late, you're gone. And, and I didn't say anything, but I was like, whatever. So the next day I'm waiting for my ride because I was living off post at this point, no longer in the barracks. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting and waiting. I realize he's not, he's nowhere to be found. Oh my God. So I get there late. Sergeant Major pulls me in and he's like, okay, here's the issue. We asked if there was any type of circumstances like this going on. You didn't say anything. Like right now I'm looking at taking you from an E5 back down to a private. That's not like the leadership skills we're looking for. I explained the circumstances. He was outraged because I had tried to tell my platoon sergeant and everybody else that like this was definitely not the right time. He calls up our sergeant major. Oh His boy. sergeant major comes over there. Our sergeant major calls the first sergeant, the platoon sergeant. And basically, like, my platoon Davies, you're sergeant, pissing everybody off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This new platoon sergeant thinks, like, I just, like, screwed him over royally because he was talking about demoting them. Yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh. And, but in my I'm, like, telling the truth here. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I don't know how you think I screwed you over when ultimately, like, the only reason we're in this position is that you didn't hear me out when I sat there and tried to tell you I'll get my truck back in three days. And then this won't be an issue. Yeah. So he was pissed. I got dismissed. That sergeant major continued to ream them. And then he apparently took off. And that platoon sergeant was up there losing his mind. And F. Davies, the guy's, you know, a blue falcon. (laughs) He screwed me over. And Sergeant Jennings was up there in their their offices. And he's, I'll take him. And he's, oh, good. Get him out of here. I don't want him anymore. And so, yeah, that was honestly probably the best thing. Dude, you get the dream could have for telling the truth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a lesson to you kids out there listening to this. Tell the truth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the truth did set you free. So I got lucky. I got switched over to second platoon. He was my platoon sergeant because in first platoon, I was just a team leader. In second platoon, he became a squad leader. And so I was extremely grateful for the opportunity to like get moved over there. I remember like the next day they were doing like some PT and we were going on like a 10 mile full battle rattle march for morning PT and came back and saw him, you know, climbing the ropes out there. And so I just went right in front of like the whole crew of people with all my gear on and fucking climbed up to the top, slapped the top post and just yelled out second platoon. And that definitely was like a stab in him, stab at him and so that my whole platoon 
just went wild over like the whole idea of it. <laughs> so he tried to talk me coming back to his platoon. And I was like, you would be out of your mind or coming back to first platoon. I was like, you're out of your mind, dude. Like, you just have this poor leadership yeah. all together. But uh, yeah, it, it's definitely the best thing that could have happened. And then we get our orders to, to go to Afghanistan. Uh, so we're getting everybody, you know, on the flight line and stuff like that. And at this point, my little brother's talking about joining the military because I was able to help my mom substantially, you know, buy her a new car, get her her whole house redone, siding, a new yard with like sprinkler systems and pay for people to come mow her lawn and help out my brother in college and stuff along those guidelines. I think it, it really played a role just figuratively or a figure like for my little brother. So he ended up wanting to join too and, and was doing so right when I was getting ready to leave. So we jump on the, on the plane. It's the same thing, you know, the same. At this point, you know, I've already briefed my guys like, don't, don't think like, you know, we're going to hit the ground running. Like, don't be like this me. Is you know, I like, came out of like the airplane at the high ready. What's going down when I saw like huge gyms and McDonald's and stuff like that? <laughs> <laughs> Where are we? So, yeah. so already they had a little bit more knowledge than I did when I landed in Iraq. Yeah, we got sent over to Fabwazakwa. And this was right in the time frame of replacing Bert Bergdahl's unit. Oh, wow. So we had known, at this point, we didn't know what had happened. As far as we were known, he was captured. This was dust off. Like, we had this whole issue going on, meeting his platoon or his company. It was pretty eye-opening, considering, like... They're pretty jacked up. They, they did not think he was worth looking for by any means. Every urinal, like, where you burn your shit. They were not fans. The behind-the-scenes story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're, like, really wondering, you know, urinal or or, you know, like where you burn your shit, you know, it's just like littered in graffiti with fuck Burke Bogdahl, like trader, this and that, and all wow. this stuff's going on. And you're like, what the hell? They were pretty pissed. They had lost guys looking for him. Yeah. So that was definitely like already thrown into something that like we had no idea. So the mission had quickly turned to trying to find this guy. And so like majority of our missions were that. And, and luckily, like we went from having Humvees to MATVs here in, here in Afghanistan, which thank, thank goodness, because it was relentless IED wise. And we were out in nowhere land in Waziqua. There's nothing within a hundred miles from you. What part of Afghanistan is that region wise? Do you even remember? Oh man. I, Just the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Like I don't <laughs> even, I couldn't even tell you a hundred percent. Yeah. But as far as like resupply went was all Dumbo drops. Like we mm. didn't have like convoys coming out to us. It was just strictly C-130 fly above, push everything out the door and we're out there scrambling it up, all of our water blivets, all of our fuel, all of our food, everything came, you know, from the sky. And then we scooped it all up, which was just a different mission in general, even having to devote a whole day towards that. Yeah. And again, it was just crazy because you see this population that legitimately wants just like the rope, the chutes, the crates, anything that they can, you know, scrounge up. You're constantly having to yell at all these families that are just trying to grab this stuff, these materials, just because they think they could utilize them. These are places where they utilize cow manure for fire, dry yeah. them out, and utilize those for cooking food. You're talking about it's legitimate a, third world. Right. Like these guys, it's like a rice and raisin diet if they're lucky. And so it's just so hard to tell somebody they can't have a crate, like yeah. a useless wood crate. And stuff like that. You pile it all together and you burn it. You just light it all on fire and disintegrate and aid, douse it in diesel and burn it. Burn all of it. But the whole idea behind that is just, you think that they could possibly utilize any of those things for detonation cords or any type of IED making material that they could get from it. So that was just crazy way of resupplying and stuff like that. But we went on missions 
trying to find this guy to various, like, you know, everything was so scattered out there. This wasn't like being in like a city. It was like, there's a couple collots here. There's a giant collot a couple so you're, miles past that. So when you're first there, you're legitimately just looking for Bergdahl. That's pretty much the whole Predominantly mission. Predominantly is we're like our pr- primary mission was to go and search these various Afghani compounds for any types of clues or on the search of Bergdahl to try and find any information. We got interpreters with us that are asking all the questions, trying to figure out if there's been anybody in the area or if they've heard anything. Like we're setting up low-level voice interceptors, try and pick up any radio frequencies that have any prominent information, offering rewards. You know, you have like these pamphlets that you're throwing all over the place that is pretty much like offering rewards for any information. So it was definitely a lot different. And, And at that time, the fighting was pretty common, but majority of it was just IEDs. We'd be taking out the vehicles. One would get blown up by an IED. They might take some pop shots, try to hit a few guys and break contact at that point. We found ourselves in Afghanistan completely mission ineffective because we had so many vehicles destroyed by IEDs that we could not go out on a mounted patrol. I mean, was this happening like very early on? Were you pretty much in it immediately to where you guys are getting hit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of our first missions was out the gate going to this place. It was like a two hour drive at a snail pace, obviously in those rigs. And then we'd get into a pass where there'd be an ID and it would blow up the lead truck. We'd get out. I just remember we were taking heavy machine gun fire, telling your crew to to give redirect fire, bounding forward. We had a sniper with us. He had eyes on a guy that that had a radio and they were dropping mortars on us. And it was just weird because in those circumstances, normally you just get like the okay to snipe a guy. And we were told to stand down. But Jeez. it was just crazy to see somebody on a rooftop. He had eyes on PID, but just a radio, not a weapon. And so we weren't able to do it. We ended up, you know, apprehending the dude. And who knows what happened to him? Bring him back. He gets thrown on a bird. He goes back to be interrogated. But in Iraq, you would have definitely taken that yeah, guy out. In, yeah, in Iraq, yeah. A few years before the rules of engagements, we fell under their rules of engagements. And it was a lot of those times, those guys in Iraq, would they would find like some like little store would shoot it all up. They'd burn it all to the ground and stuff just because they said like it was a bad guy and we were able to do, just sit there and watch him like completely destroy like this little shop on the side of the road to, yeah, we we were under like, we, we still had Afghani soldiers that we were with. We we're talking like four or five of them at the very most out there. But yeah, it was pretty crazy as far as like IEDs go. Everybody was hitting IEDs. How does, um, that, how does that affect your mentality going in? Because that's the silent killer. I've talked about this in other podcasts, but I really believe that the greatest psychological tool is not necessarily the sniper. It's really the IED, isn't it? When you're facing that kind of an enemy, that enemy you can't see, that's got to be extremely frustrating as an infantryman. It is insane for sure. And and you also just, like I said, we're stretched so so thin. Like we had a blimp in the sky with a camera on it, but that was it. We didn't have birds flying all over the place. We didn't have any type of resupport. We were just out there with a company of guys, nobody else in the perimeter. And so a lot of times we just didn't have a lot of the crucial support that we probably could have been a lot more effective at what we were doing. But we were just trying to plan various routes to get to locations. And it was just unreal because it didn't matter like which way we took. Like there has to be so many IEDs surrounding this place that like there was just no way. We didn't have the EOD units with us to even be able to pick them up. But it is definitely crazy because 
you never know, but you are fully expecting it. Every time we finally get the equipment in to replace some trucks and we go from dismounted patrols and walking all over to mounted patrols, we just knew, uh, yeah, well, we'll be right back in the same spot within a week. And I was with my platoon sergeant. We were in the back of an MATV and we were on en route to go to this village and do the same thing. And this was the, the first IED that I had encountered myself personally being in the vehicle. The majority of our platoon already was at some point hit an IED and I got to a point where I thought I was like lucky, you know, I was like, man, maybe it's just like, <laughs> I got some good guardian angels or something. We were probably like three months, three months into it. And That's not that long. Only one. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, bad when sure. you're three months in and you're like, ah, oh, my ID oblivious yeah. here, man. They can't hit me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it just seems to be everybody else, yeah. but never the vehicle I'm in. <laughs> maybe that's why my platoon sergeant had me riding with him that yeah, day. Yeah, I'm sure. But yeah, I just remember I was in the back. He was commanding up there in the passenger seat. I was in the back closest behind him. Three, two dudes to my left, three across from me. And I just, I was legitimately like had my helmet off. I was eating like a can of tuna with some crackers and I honestly thought we had drove over like a 10-foot cliff or something because all of a sudden it just felt like we were airborne for a moment of time and then crushing back down onto the ground and everything's like full of smoke so I have no idea I just remember yelling like what the fuck (laughs) because I was pissed I thought the driver just drove us off a wadi or something the new driver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the dust is slowly like starting to settle at this point. And I'm like looking around and it, it registers like, oh shit, like we just hit an IED. Everybody in that vehicle had some pretty significant injuries. I'm majority of the people in the back were entirely unconscious. The platoon sergeant and the driver were extremely concussed, had no, you know, no idea what was going on. And you, this place, this thing's just full of smoke and, and dust and quickly realized like some of these guys need to get to a medic immediately. They're bleeding heavily and got to get them out of here. Again, like I said, I don't know. I don't know how out of everybody, maybe I was just in the perfect seat in that thing to not be affected fully immediately. Those things got like the one ton doors. Everything's disabled in the truck. I jack it down manually. And as soon as like that door dropped, they started opening up on us with small arms, fire machine guns, fire right into the back of it. And Jeez. just grabbed the first guy I could. And at this point, they started dropping some orders on us. Grab the first guy and just start dragging him to the next truck where the medic could dismounted, just dropping him underneath their trucks, coordinating fire with the trucks to start giving fire. But they'd planned this pretty well. It was definitely a complex ambush. They had the high ground, fixed positions, and just continued to do that through open fire. Just grab everybody from the truck that I possibly could, get them to the medics under fire. And Knew like we're in like a really bad spot and clicked, get that mortar tube, which was also in our vehicle. So again, had to run. Great. Got to go back in. Yeah, exactly. Got to make another sprint for the vehicle and just grabbed that 60 millimeter, grabbed a couple gunners, a couple machine gunners out of their trucks, directed their fire from like the primary location of where we were taking fire and just with an ammo can full of 60 millimeters in that tube, I just like I was just making it rain. Like I probably went through that whole can before the second round had even impacted. Like I was just put a niche on it and just started just one after another and just made it rain across the entire hillside. And whether they broke contact or we managed to kill a few of them, I don't know, because we quickly realized we had to get out of there and it was pretty, pretty impossible to be able to maneuver at any point. The fire, all the fire had ceased. We was able to get back to call a nine line medevac and get all these guys on the bird and get them out of there. And surprisingly, none of them were killed. Wow. We'll be able to make a full recovery. And it was pretty 
pretty incredible for sure. And I, you know, That's I amazing. ended up getting like the Army Commendation Medal with the V V device, Valorous device on it. And on a report that was written up saying that I'd saved the lives of 20, 24 soldiers that day, which was pretty, pretty incredible. It's just weird because in those types of situations, I don't feel like you look at it that way. By no means did I feel like I was going above and beyond what was required from me. And in my mind, this is what has to be done. If we want to get the hell out of here and not take any more casualties, like this just has to be done. And I would expect the same from any of my squad to be able to react in the same situation. Mm. But yeah, getting praised for something that just seems like another day out there <laughs> was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's wild, man. What a story. And in all reality, you're in a place where instinct probably took over, but you were doing what you were taught to do as a soldier. Right. You were taking that on. And through that, you did go above and beyond the call, but that is your job as a soldier as well. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I guess it just comes down to if you're just going to sit there and hope you're getting out alive, like you're not doing anything to change the odds. <laughs> if you don't react. You could have just sat in the truck. Yeah, you would have been fun. Exactly. They wouldn't have come up to the back of the yeah, truck and executed you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Or just sat there and waited till the mortar hit directly on one of them. And it's crazy. But Did you feel any sense of fear in that moment or was it just pure adrenaline and do what you got to do? Yeah, it's just, it's so weird to think about. It's just like you're operating of like like I said, we just spent so much time training with the Rakasans nonstop, countless days in, days out, living in the field and preparing for those types of moments. So it's almost just second nature. And even being able to see, you know, rounds splashing all around you and stuff like that, it just just doesn't fully register in that moment that it only takes one of those to to rip through you and take you out of the world. And so it is weird. I just always, yeah, all the time in the military, I just had this mentality that that it would never be me. Yeah. You know? Which is probably actually pretty healthy for your ability to fight. For sure, yeah. Like I said, if you, the idea is to consistently push forward. If you're pinned down and you're not maneuvering and, and trying to make them feel the pressure that you're coming to get them, then they're just going to do the exact same as you are. They're just going to keep pushing towards you till they can start taking one by one out. Was there a moment for you overseas on that tour of Afghanistan? Because that was, you know, a tough tour, obviously. You're going down on vehicles where you're almost completely combat ineffective, at least through the trucks. What was it for you? Were there any moments of fear or trepidation where you're like, oh, the situation could go real bad real quick? Yeah. Did you ever have that? Definitely. Without a doubt. Yeah. So with that, yeah, like we were doing everything we could and then got mobilized for being a quick reaction force. A lot of a lot of the times, like you're in one area of operations for like the whole time, our platoon, honestly, our whole company was like the QRF. So our platoons were even like split up at times from the whole company. We'd take this area, they would take that area and stuff. And so everybody was getting split up. But basically, wherever the most fighting was happening in Afghanistan, they would redirect our platoon. We'd pack up everything into our duffels. We'd jump on a Chinook. We'd fly to the next location. We'd get some tiny little hole-in-the-wall area dropped in with another company to to basically be like QRF and, and, and react to them being the, any area that was taking high casualties or an immense amount of firefights occurring on the regular. And so, yeah, like it, at that point, we had got those orders probably about five, five months in, I'd say. And at this point, you know, we had people that were injured and stuff like that, but nobody was killed at that point in time. And so we go to... Or we went to Fob Ghazni out there in the Ghazni province. That. And that was complete 
180 different from where we were just at. We were in like an extremely mountainous terrains with like super spread out like villages here and there to being like in in a big city mm. um, and that was taking that was constantly getting into to firefights. And so when we ar- arrived there, everything switched over to foot patrols. We were going out to sectors basically that was impossible to get vehicles in there. They knew there was too many IEDs. You would never get to your location to carry on your mission. So we did everything completely light, light infantry. And there's, there was this moment where we were going out because we had just took rockets into the fob that day to the direction in which they picked up the, what are those called? They pretty much, they pretty much can, I know that there, there's a term for them on a vehicle. Basically, it'll tell you the distance and direction like a fire, the fire is coming from. Okay. It pretty much just calibrates the direction and distance of what just came in coming. And so we had an idea. So we moved over to the city. So you're talking about like a warning net over the, normally over a base, but on a vehicle. It's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Almost like a mortar alarm. Okay. Basically, but it can also determine the way of which that round was, it just came in to, okay. to your area. And so useful technology. Yeah, for sure. If it works. Yeah, exactly. If it works for sure. I felt like the truck ones, it's pretty obvious normally when you're, when your rounds are pinging off trucks, where it's coming from, it's got to be on that side. Right. But yeah, it was just crazy because these guys were so incredibly accurate with plunging fire, like something that you really can't react to. They just get like an area dialed in to where they can fire their 50 cals and lob them in from a distance that like an M4 and 240s and stuff like that aren't going to be able to get to, especially if you don't have the same angle on being able to drop those rounds in. So you were dealing with some trained dudes. Yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. And anyway, so we were, we were going to this village that was literally probably 300 yards from our little base through this wide open film field. It's got a deep wadi in, in the middle of it. And we get there. And it just seems pretty lax. We were definitely not expecting anything to occur because you're right next to your fob. We get there, you know, Sergeant Jennings tells us to take some, take up the roof positions and pull security while they're going to meet and, you know, greet with these guys and try to figure out any information on where the rocket came from or any intelligence that we can utilize. And we're sitting up there for an hour or so. We finally get the word, break it all down. Let's go back. Everything's all said and done. So we start all breaking down. We're getting off the roofs. We're getting ready. Our lieutenant at the time strikes up another apparently in-depth conversation that's going to be a little bit longer. They send us back up to the roofs and probably five minutes into that conversation, there's these four motorcycles rolling in. And one of my buddies, one of my guys, Dunlap, he's like, shit, I'm pretty sure this guy's got an RPG rolling in on the back. So I run over to his side and look and immediately, without a doubt, one guy has, you know, a belt fed machine gun. One guy has an RPG with four rockets in his backpack and the other guy with an assault rifle. And these guys were geared up to where they almost looked military. Mm. Um, I radioed down, platoon sergeant says, hold on, stand by. There could be Afghan soldiers in the area for somebody to be so openly carrying these weapon systems, you would almost imagine that how could you make it that far on a motorcycle with those on your back? And so he gives the call in and these guys are, are coming almost hundred, probably 50 yards in front of us coming like right through where we're all set up. But yeah, we get the call back. There's definitely no, no ANA in the area. They're not so, there for tea. And so at some point when we were breaking down, you realize like these guys got a call from whoever is in this village that they're leaving 
and they, I'm pretty sure their whole plan of attack was when we exfil and walk across that open field, we'll just be wide open targets and uh, spray us down as much as possible and try and get us with some RPGs. So by the time I get that, they're 50 yards in front of us and the front motorcycle just stops and he pulls out his cell phone and gets on the phone and you can tell it's definitely somebody being like, hold up, stop, hit the brakes. Like they're not leaving right now. And so immediately this dude goes from comfortably riding down this trail on his motorcycle to, oh shit, looks around, sees us on the rooftop, you know, and they, you know, quickly went to get off their motorcycles. I opened up the first round, had my machine gunners dial down. We killed the first two right out of the gate. The one guy actually flips over like this little four foot, like mud wall that, that has no way out. It's completely open on both other sides. So he's just laying on the other side and. So I just started lobbing 40 millimeters off the grenade launcher because I love that thing. <laughs> like, even as a squad leader, I was like, I will have, at that time it was now the 320, but I loved that thing. Like, the 320 that thing, was solid yeah, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so I just started dropping rounds over the top of them. Russ, how come you're never any rounds expended from <laughs> yeah. your airport? Now, yeah, exactly. It's just all grenades. Yeah, all, just a bunch of rusty like magazines full of my but I need like a new bandolier of 40 millimeters, like every firefight. <laughs> and I'm impacting rounds pretty like right behind this wall. And by this time, the platoon sergeant gets up there and he's like, let's hold our fire. You know, like, let's see if we can get this guy to, to get up if he's still alive. And a couple minutes later, sure as hell, he stands up, but he doesn't have his weapon on him at all. Anymore. He's probably in a bit of a day. Yeah. You could definitely tell he was concussed for sure. He was staggering. He had been tethered up by probably some shrapnel from them 40 40 millimeters and uh I, I was just gonna I was gonna drop the guy. There was no doubt like, that was what they were coming to do. He's like, hold your fire. He's, he doesn't have a weapon. He's not a combatant at this point. And just watching this dude stumble stumble around probably 15 feet later, and all of a sudden, like he just like disappears. <laughs> it was like the weird, it was like, wait, what the hell just happened? You know? We're in the twilight zone. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, wait a second. It, it, we finally realized like he had fell down like a dried up well oh, um yeah you know not very far away he tells me to take my squad and go go check all the go clear the area check the bodies and so i go down there i send one of my teams to clear the bodies and one team to move in on um, where that guy was last seen and that like goes back to that leadership mentality it'd be a lot easier for I think some people to send one of their guys knowing that guy could be laying down there with his rifle pointed straight up as soon as you peek your head over. But in my mind, I'm not going to send somebody, I would never send my guys to do something I wouldn't be willing to do. And so I went over there to check and see what had happened to this guy and peeked over real briefly and tried to take a look and saw him and he was definitely moving. He did not have a weapon or at least that I could see. And so I looked over and stood above him and he was mumbling something i don't know what he was trying to say but he was fumbling around with his like flak jet flak jacket and i quickly realized oh, he's grabbing a grenade and standing probably 10 feet above this guy just pumped like four rounds into him until until he stopped moving and that's just something that's like really hard it's so much different when you're in a firefight, you're actively watching them fire at you and you guys end up ultimately killing like a, an armed combatant, but like you're not looking them in the face yeah. of a terrified individual. You're terrified. You're talking about 20 year old kids that are fighting each other to death, which was just crazy. Just a, a vision that I'll forever like have burned in my mind. 
all the movies when somebody dies, their eyes close. And that's not the case a majority of the time. It was hard to even dictate when he was actually killed. Yeah. By this point, the, they've gotten, our little fob has received word of what just happened. They're sending trucks out with another platoon to come out and get and provide some overwatch for us in case this is going to get even bigger. And now I, I don't think a lot of, a lot of like the civilian world understands like you retrieve every body that you kill. Right. Everybody goes back with you to the base. So you don't just you, leave them there. Right. Yeah. If you thought you were close enough. Not the revolutionary enough, war. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like there are thousands yeah. of people. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Ceasefire, yeah. fire. Everybody can gather up. <laughs> They're fallen. And so that was crazy. And now there's guys at the bottom of this well that's probably four feet, you know, wide if that and 10, 15 feet below. A lot of people don't realize that you have to collect the enemies that you have killed so that they can evaluate the bodies and they got the bats and hide system and be able to tell if this is a guy, a high value target that they've been looking for a while by his irises, his, his fingerprints and, and things along those guidelines. So by this time that it's, it's received word back that we're into a firefight. So they send out trucks to, to give us some support and some overwatch. And so there's guys down in the bottom of the well, and you know, this just goes back to that same thing. Like I'm not going to make some one of my guys go pick up somebody that I had just killed. So I drop down this well and I'm pretty much just standing on top of this guy. And I realized I don't even think I could get out of there. Even if I didn't have to take a body with, for me to have been able to get out of that would have been impossible. And so the, the only thing we could really come up with was to bring a truck right up to the, the nose of the truck, right up to the well and drop down a winch cable, which was definitely not the most caring way to extract a body by any means, but it's one way or another it has to be done. So I, I wrapped this winch around this guy's chest area and he's got bullet holes through him. So blood's coming out the back of him. And the last thing I want to do is be underneath this body, getting winched up, getting blood poured all over me. It was the craziest situation because I just had to stand on him mm -hmm. with this winch cable and ride him up like an elevator, basically, which, you know, and that's just something that you never forget. In those it, moments when you're there and do you think about the fact that that could have been either you or him? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the biggest things. A week before that, my buddy, Chris Bales, one of my, I told you about him back in Iraq, we'd went through everything together, was out on mission and they came into a firefight and they were raining down fire on them. They were pinned down in like an open field. He was on a quad with the Mark 19 on the back. So he ripped out there after one of the guys was hit to try and lay down some fire. They quickly locked onto him, shot him up pretty bad. He took two, seven, six, two rounds through the back. Jeez. And I wasn't there on that mission specifically with him, but knowing that's one of your one of your best friends that you've gone through everything with and that you don't know if he's going to live or die comes into play. Like you in your right mind are like, I could have just killed the guy that almost killed one of my best friends, but it is just so eye opening to look at somebody in which you are both almost the same age. And for whatever reason, you two are coming now face to face into a fight for the death. Mm -hmm. And that guy, I'm sure his family will receive word back home that he was killed in action just like I could have been. 
Yeah. And so that definitely is, it just plays a huge role on like your mind. It's just like so hard with the struggle of one, what are we like doing over here? And two, why have we gotten to a point where like, it's just like young kids now fighting each other to death? Yeah. Um, There's got to be a moment too. And I think the VA did, might've not been the VA, it might've been an independent organization that did a study on post-traumatic stress and the impact of killing within certain distances and all that. And it was found that it was a distance ratio, really. Like, you know, a lot of the firefighting, even in Vietnam, was like 500 meters out. Right. A lot of the stuff in Iraq's probably like 1,000 meters out. Afghanistan, 1,000. Right. Iraq, probably closer. But you're still not seeing the guy face-to-face in a lot of engagements. You're just, in a way, shooting a moving target. Right. And so I think there's a psychological effect there that is not as heavy as being face to face with the enemy. And there's right. you know, there have been studies done on that where you're 10 feet out, there's much more of a psychological impact in having to make that decision. For and sure. you saw that, I'm sure, is the reality there, right? For sure. Yeah, without a doubt. There's just firefights that occur where you, they have their cover, you have your cover, you have a whole platoon and trucks opening up. By the time you reach those bodies to collect them up, you don't know who hit that guy. It could have been you, it could have been anybody, but it's not so personal to where it was like you standing right above somebody and ultimately looking somebody in the eye when you kill them. Yeah. I definitely renders in my mind, damn, that would be like the worst position to ever find yourself in unarmed with just a grenade laying at the bottom of a, a well and knowing like you can't get out of that well. And, it's about as bad as it gets. And they're coming. Yeah. 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 And they're definitely going to come. I would probably would have done the exact same thing. The last thing I would ever allow myself to do would be captured by the yeah. enemy. So whether or not I use that grenade for myself in hopes to get some other people or I would much rather prefer to to not come home than to be captured. Yeah, um, especially by them. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just something that will forever be like ingrained in my mind. Normally, you just throw a bag to the side, pull and body into the bag, zip it up and you're on your way. But having to put a winch cable that's capable of pulling a, a two-ton vehicle out of a mud hole, it was standing on top of this dude, I could feel that cable getting tighter and tighter with a couple hundred pounds and the drag of it going over the side and just feeling this whole body crushing in. I could yeah. hear, could hear, I could feel like through my boots, just his rib cage collapsing in. Yeah, that was just something that you normally just don't find yourself in scenarios like that. Got him out. He definitely, he, he did have a sidearm on him. He had multiple grenades, whole magazines, tons of cash. Wow. He was without a doubt a bad guy, but it, it was weird. I don't even... It wasn't even a local of Afghanistan. I can't even remember. I don't remember. Crossing that invisible bridge yeah, huh, for exactly. jihad. Yeah. So you like realize like. This is a highly orchestrated yeah, attack. Yeah, you're not just fighting strictly Afghanis. You have Pakistanis and surrounding countries that are coming over there ultimately. Like Iranian, uh, Chechnyan, yep. Somali. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah. All these people in them are just for hire too, which, you know, it's crazy to me that just to jump on board and go where the money is to take life. That's just something I feel like I could never do, even though I guess in a sense. You are doing it in one way. That's what I was doing. (laughs) Just for somebody to knock on your door and and be an assassin for a conflict that has nothing to do with you or your country. That's insane. You get out, you bag them up, you take them back. They evaluate them. You have to talk to the CID about like. This is a whole other weird process. They have to document like every kill, what your moves were. And then you're like, am I going to be like held in a court of law for this. It's just like a weird like dynamics that is held when it's definitely not being held by the opposing enemy. Yeah. Like, that's not their goal, but 
it shapes the side of warfare too, man, especially in those rules of engagement. I think a lot of guys I've heard spoken specifically to the British guys in Basra, and they said they were constantly afraid of the possibility of court-martial, and that affects your ability sometimes to even pull the trigger. For sure. Is this going to land me in a court? Which is crazy. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, when you're kicking down a door, you fly in on a Blackhawk, you have this facility you're about to hit. There's absolutely no doubt that they're well aware that, like, you're coming inbounds when you land. And then knowing that on the other side of that door, when you breach it and rushing into a room could be somebody with a rifle pointed right in your face as soon as you enter the room. It's super hard. There's just, it's so hard to be able to dictate that. I've heard of people that have hit a room and it was a lady holding a broom and just instinctively opened fire and stuff. And then to think that you go through all this training to be able to hit a room that fast and with that much firepower and rapidly gain control of this facility that like something like that could forever end you up in, in prison for the rest of your life, Yeah, which is so hard. You have moments of a second when two people have a rifle pointed at each other to be the first one to, to, to fire your, your weapon. I've heard a statistic that it's like when you kick down the door, you basically got 0.4 seconds. Right. Which is like hitting a 96 mile an hour fastball. Exactly. Yeah. Crazy. Exactly. If you think about it, it's past. Yeah. Yeah. You've missed your window. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just crazy. To punish people for that. Right. It's just, it's one thing if you're going in, you know, we've all heard the stories of guys leaving their base and like going into the town and killing like the local populace. Okay. That guy's a dirtbag. He deserves to be punished. But People like reacting in a split second decision, getting punished for that right. just seems so wild. You send a young man to war to make these decisions and we're making more complex decisions than a lot of policemen are making oh, 100%. You know, in a completely different Without country with different cultures right? where weapons are the norm. And rules of engagements are changing and defining like who is enemy over there is impossible. You know, I mean, you could be surrounded in a community full of people and for all you know, you were fighting that guy the day before, but yeah. no idea. Everybody's wearing like the same thing. There's no defined uniform. So it's just, it's just super hard to like know who the enemy is, who to be trusted and then being put in those situations where you're kicking down a door and for all it could be booby trapped there it's definitely things should definitely be taken into consideration when prosecuting the young men and women that are serving this country and ready to just explode you could just be walking right into an ied but like you said you have to get in that door you have to get dominance as rapidly as possible and that window of time is so small that yeah it is it is super difficult, but like you said, for going over there and ultimately doing their jobs, if, if somebody is obviously a lunatic, I feel like it, one, it comes to the, down to the platoon yeah. to recognize that. If you have somebody that's going in there and being a complete degenerate and grabbing women by the hair and dragging them across hallways and, and beating the shit out of people, I mean, you're making more enemies yeah. than you are allies in that point. Like if I was in that same circumstance as a kid and all of a sudden my door gets kicked out and, and not only are you scared for your life, but then you watch your dad just blatantly get the piss kicked out of him. Without a doubt, the next day, what I'm going to do is find whatever militia is fighting that group of individuals, join up, and you just created another enemy. Yeah, I try to kill as many of us as yeah. I can. Because there's no doubt that there's lots of people over there that given a golden ticket and a flight to America and walk away from all of that and, and have a whole new start at life would undoubtedly do it. Not everybody over there you, you hear that for, oh, if it was up to me, I'd just nuke that whole country here. Dude, <laughs> you're going to be the one to pull that trigger. <laughs> like you could sleep at night knowing you've never been there. You've never seen it. You've never seen how much these people are struggling just to live. 
yeah. let alone don't want anything to do with the conflict. That country's been in war since forever. Yeah. It's like a way of life. And yeah. I'm sure nobody was like, oh, I'd love to move to Afghanistan and just be in the middle of all this <laughs> at any point. Courage makes a soldier, but compassion, I think, defines like an outstanding soldier. Yeah. If you don't have compassion, then you shouldn't be in the military. That makes you a sociopath. Yeah, exactly. Like, And and I feel like, you know, going back to what you said about the platoon level and making those choices and those decisions and disciplinary actions on guys that are making those, I don't know about you, but I knew who those guys were like going in. That guy is a dangerous individual and not dangerous in like a good way. Like dangerous in, I don't know what he's going to do when kicked down a door. I have no idea what he's going to do. If he's going to stay sane throughout the whole tour. For sure. Yeah. They almost like immediately seem like ticking time bombs, like they got something to prove. Mm-hmm. They, they just make almost every situation uneasy when you're surrounded by them, you know. Like a negative thing on the military is a lot of these guys stay in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't get out. <laughs> this is the only thing that they've ever done, and, and they move up the ranks. That individual, as they climb up the ladder, are only instructing young, moldable minds to act in that same way. Yeah, the guy's you know? shaping soldiers. Yeah. He's shaping the minds exactly. of these young soldiers. And that's so and that's incredibly word, dangerous. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So after that occurrence, how much did that impact your mind going forward? How much longer did you have on the tour? I think that was probably around like seven or, seven or eight months in. And, uh, and you were there for how long? Twelve. Twelve, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was probably around like that time frame. Things are definitely getting heavy. Like I said, you're taking casualties and had a handful of buddies that had been injured, shot, almost lost their lives. At this point, our platoon had not had anybody who was a KIA. Which is nothing short of a miracle. Right, for sure. But we, at that point, you know, we had close to 50% of our company, our platoon that had Purple Hearts. I received a Purple Heart in Afghanistan on a mission similar to the others. Just an IED hits the truck that I'm commanding destroys the vehicle, small arms fire, ambush, ended up getting out of there. Luckily had enough support that we had a quick QRF that was able to get there. I was pretty much rendered unconscious and tattered up with shrapnel and pretty much woke up in an aid station. Jeez. Which is is insane too, because it's pretty much, oh yeah, we have a 48 hour, you have a 48 hour turnaround. Like here's some bandages, keep that clean. After 48 hours, we determined that that concussion should be completely healed and right back out the door you go. So it's, it's not the NFL. You're not getting the week off. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So it it is weird with the amount of people that have been injured or like that close to a near death experience and having to get up the next day and do it all over again. I think one of the, one of the times when we talk about the fear aspect coming into play is we were going to a zone that was 100% like known, like you're going to come into contact. It's not friendly. Like you, the whole population, you'll definitely understand. We're rallying with EOD. It was painstakingly slow. You're creeping, creeping every 500 feet and stopping because there's an ID waiting for it to get detonated. And by the eighth or 10th one, four hours later, you know, we start taking direct fire, me and my squad. And one other squad move out and quickly start taking machine gun fire and we're maneuvering through the city. And by now we're like so separated by the trucks that they're pretty much u- useless at this point to our, to, to be an asset. But chase this guy down that was on foot, ran down this like alleyway. They started opening up, rounds started bouncing off all the walls. The quickest thing that went through my mind is breached the nearest door to me, broke into this compound, quickly cleared it, got set up on 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 the rooftop they're still they probably had a good like 10 fighters 
they had a machine gun nest up on a, on a high like mud tower. And so I just took the AT4. I always carried an AT4 too. Grenade. You like those, those yeah, explosives. Exactly. <laughs> Anything that's like making a statement. So <laughs> Gotta make the statement, yeah. man. Gotta go full send. <laughs> exactly. Dude. Like, dude, like you said, the quickest thing you can do is get fire superiority. And so just broke that AT4 open, launched a rocket straight in the side of that tower. Immediately started taking fire from the wadis and surrounding buildings. We have two squads up there and I mean, it's full on for probably a good... 10, 15 minutes to a point where it's conserve your ammo. Although I was down to six grenades and hit three, three magazines, you know, Jeez. and in majority of the entire two squads, yeah, your machine gunners can go through a little five, five, six nutsack of rounds in a minute. Yeah. That. Yeah. So they're down to nothing. And pretty soon, like we're realizing like, we don't have any mortars. We don't have any assets with us. We're like, legitimately like if you're going to fire make sure it's impacting somebody and no longer gain fire superiority try to like get them before they can get to us and that was probably like one of the scariest situations i think i've ever been in knowing that it was like going to be impossible really to get to the trucks and two knowing man if the if these if they decide to rush like you don't have enough rounds yeah, to be able geez. to fight it off and so that was probably one of like the scariest moments. You have a little bit of time to contemplate, I'm sure, right. as you're working your way because you don't have as many rounds right. and not as much going on, but you're thinking like they're on the other side of this wall or compound or whatever and they're thinking, all right, I'm hearing less rounds impact. Yeah. There's yeah, clearly exactly. an ammo rounds. deficiency here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't have your machine gunners light off a whole round while you maneuver on them because they just, that would be the end of their ammo. Yeah. So that was definitely extremely intense for sure. It became more of like, all right, we just got to hold this, this stronghold, but don't let them get in the doors. Focus on like the end, the, the, the entries and exits. And, and instead of trying to pick them off as they're maneuvering around the outside of the building, it's basically hold this, hold the stronghold down as, as long as we can. It almost gets down to an, an Alamo type situation yeah. where you just hold on to what you got until you're black on ammo. Right. But we are super lucky in that situation. We finally got the RTO to be able to f call in a fast mover and be able to start dropping like some 500-pound bombs all around the surrounding area. But it, honestly, if it wasn't for that close, that air support, it wasn't to a point where we could start dropping mortars. Yeah. We couldn't call for fire and start having them drop. It was just such a populated city that the, the potential to kill innocent, you know, standbyers was, was definitely there. Those fast movers, they can, you can hold a laser and they can put a bomb there for sure. <laughs> and so luckily we were able to get them on call. They made a handful of gun runs, dropped a handful of bombs and stuff. But then there, then there's the next aspect that you have to go check that area. Yeah. You can't just drop bombs and be like, all right, that's our pop smoke move. Like, we just <laughs> we're out, dudes. Back to the trucks. <laughs> so then you have to go and, and check for any type of battle damage. Yeah. So you got to walk across these open fields that you were just taking massive fire from. And, and by the way, you don't okay. have more ammo at this right. point. And, you, and yeah, exactly. It didn't just and pop yeah. up Call of Duty style. And you're just <laughs> in the worst scenario. There's no coverage. You're just walking across like this blatant farm field in the wide open. And yeah, it's just it's just gnarly. so crazy to be like, all right, you know, I know that we don't really have the rounds. We don't have we don't have the bodies and we don't have the support. We're just going to go check these areas when it's dude. Let's just get out of here while the getting is good and having to make that decision in your mind that this is required. And yeah. So you're going there. Yeah. And luckily we were able to check those areas and pick up a couple dead bodies and stuff. And that was definitely, it, it was, it's a little bit terrifying because I had hit a guy making a run across 
trying to maneuver in the midst of it. And they had, when everything was going on, they had managed to grab that guy's body and drag him down into a wadi and take all of his supplies, his weapon, everything else. And so by the time you get there, there's just this guy that's dead. And you're like, that goes through your mind instantly. And it's okay. There's no weapon to go along Mm. with this dead body. Yeah. Is this somebody else has that then fearing for like the exact same thing? Are they going to be like, then how do we know that this wasn't just Uh, some random person? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, there's just, and there's probably some intentionality there from them because they know our rules better than we do. Right. Yeah, for sure. And and it is super common for if one gets hit, just like we do take all their, all the essentials that you can off the wounded before they get medevaced out, take all their ammo, take any other sensitive items. That could be a benefit if coming into contact again. And they do the exact same thing and they'll pick up the the machine gun from the fallen and they'll just start utilizing it in your direction too. But the trucks had got there. Finally, by this point, we collected the bodies. We were trying to make our exit and they were not making that easy. They were launching RPGs at us, trying to like get the hell out of there. And we had another platoon. This is also 10... 10 or 11 months into deployment. Like we're getting close to go home. And when they're telling you, you're going to places where it's going to 100% be a fight. You're, you're like, like oh, oh, why, why couldn't we have done yeah, this early? <laughs> for sure. At this point, you're like, oh, dude, am I going to make it home? My mortality is starting to become a thing. <laughs> yeah. And we also had another platoon that was in the area um, that was in the same issue. They were in heavy contact as well. And uh, there was a guy that I knew. He was in third platoon and, his name was Sean Russell, Sean Russell cut forth and they came into contact and he was hit directly in the face, killed instantly. And this is a 22 year old kid who had a wife at home. She's pregnant with their kid. Jeez. You're a month away from going home. And all of a sudden now you're not, your family's getting like the worst news that they could ever get. And all that miss and that like insane firefight and everything like that, you realize like you just lost a guy 100%. He's not going home. And it's just devastating. There's just so many things going on out there. There's playing like a role when you come home that I think it's really hard for the civilian side of things to ever grasp just how intense that would ever be. There's a majority of people will never even see an actual dead body in their lives, yeah. let alone have to take one or watch somebody that you love deeply killed in, in, in action like that. I think just for a moment, if you try to put yourself in that situation where it's not like you really ever want to be there, but you are in a situation where it's, kill or be killed. It's just a hard concept for anybody to, to be able to even think of or let alone fathom. It's, there's no wonder why soldiers are coming back mentally impaired by those types of situations. You talk about traumatic. There's few things more traumatic than those types of experiences. Yeah. But luckily was able to make it out of the military. We had all finally got home. It's, I feel like it, it's at that point that it really like settles in the amount of times where you were so close to dying in, in, in the heat of it and, and everything like that. And when there's firefights going on and rounds are flying, it, it's almost impossible to, to really like sit back and think about that. If yeah. one of those rounds would have hit me instead of the ground surrounding me or the vehicles or anything like that would have been it. It would have been over. That would have been the end of it, in the middle of it, it's the last thing you want to dwell on because you got to get back out Keep moving the next day. So 
it's pretty crazy. Like ultimately looking back, you're like, how the hell did we make it? <laughs> Especially when you're coming to encounters like that, where you're almost going black on ammo and you have so many right. situations that just kind of rely on, do we have close air support? How does the other platoon react? Right. What happens? Do they decide to close in on us because if they decide to close in on us right now? It doesn't matter. Close air support doesn't get here soon enough. Right. You know? And the last thing you don't have to do is drop a bomb on yourselves because you're being overran. Yeah. Because once they're in those doors, you no longer have the option to just start calling for fire or anything along those guidelines because that's you. You know, you guys are right on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's just some crazy situations. And, and you're figuring this all out before you're 23 years old. Right. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And then like Iraq, you talk about five to 10 minute firefights, if that normally not with like large numbers of like whole cities fighting you, but just one or two guys trying to get a couple casualties and pop smoke to being in firefights for the entire day. It's just crazy. I was lucky enough. My whole squad, they all made it home though. So mm. I'm super fortunate that I didn't have to go through that. There's a positive impact there on the psychology for sure, man. Right. Like being able to bring all your guys home. For sure. Yeah. And it's like a weird way of looking at the table. It's like it, it, in the back of your mind, you're like, if I can kill like at least two or three before I'm killed, then like I'm a benefit. If you walk out the door and you're, you're killed instantly, you didn't get to do your job. The idea is to eliminate the enemy. And so it's just you have this weird criteria in your mind of at least let me bag a few so I can feel like I... I did something over here. But yeah, it's pretty hard. Yeah, it gotten out and it gotten, they always throw like in your face, like re-enlistment ideas, re-enlistment <laughs> bonuses and stuff like that. They're like, dude, we'll give you a $20,000 sign-on bonus. We'll make you an E6 and you'll be, you can, you're like, what? that's, if you break that down four years, 20,000, that's $5,000 a year. You realize <laughs> that is incentive. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but not very much. You quickly realize like you're not making you're not making any money in the military. There's some guys that have some rocks sitting up top and they, right. that are like, yeah, dude, 20,000 bucks. And it's like, yeah, but that's also five years of your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or four years of your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't when you, when you make very up, much. You're yeah. talking about like an extra $4,000 a year. <laughs> you're not know? talking about these F-16 pots that are right. getting offered like $500,000 yeah. to re-enlist. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is crazy. Yeah. Uh, that might be tempting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> even yeah. then, dude, even then exactly. I would have been out. <laughs> exactly. And I would feel a little bit more comfortable in the air. Yeah. Flying over the chaos. Yes. Being the, the troops that are coming face to face with enemy. And a lot oh, of those pilots like, got it sweet. Yeah. I don't think any of them would say different. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what was that like when you're transitioning home? You're getting off that tour and you finally got that, probably that adrenal dump. Right. Coming home and you're realizing everything that just happened and occurred. What was that like for you? It's like I said, there's just so many things going through your mind at that point. And you do wonder, what am I going to do? when I get out, maybe I am just like a great fit for this and stuff. But at the same time, you're like, you just took five years of like your youth, blood, sweat, and tears and going through like some of the most crazy situations that in my mind, it was finally time to be like, I've held the line for five years. I feel like I put blood, sweat, tears into all of this. And it's time to finally enjoy the freedoms that I've been fighting so hard for and see what life is about. You go from being a kid in high school, straight into the military, you've never really had the freedoms of being able to go and do what you want when you want to do it. When you're in third world torn countries and, and the living is definitely the most harsh environments that you can possibly get used to. And yeah, it just, I think it was just the reality of you can only count your blessings so many times. Like the encounters that we came in, I feel lucky today just to still be here 
And so the transition was definitely difficult. The infantry, when you think it's going to like jumpstart your life and you're going to have school and stack a bunch of cash, you quickly realize it's, there is no jobs out there. (laughs) Realistically looking to be an infantryman, you know, other than if you wanted to go be a contractor within, that's basically the military. You're doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So that was a little difficult trying to find out what I was going to do. And it was definitely hard because even in your off time, like basically the military teaches you to be good at drinking and fighting. Like <laughs> That's like your way of... I like that idea. <laughs> yeah. No, other than that, I didn't go into an MOS that was people are going to be waiting on the outside to be throwing jobs your way with a certain set of skills. It was definitely really difficult. Like I decided, I'd made up my mind that like, instead of utilizing like that twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 that I had made up over that deployment and, and saved away, instead of like just going back and trying to do a responsible thing of buy a house, start a family, get a job and build an empire. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to use this money to do whatever I want for like the next two years. And I did know, basically the same thing, dude. Yeah. You're not that irresponsible. Good. <laughs> yeah. Good. I feel like it's well earned. You earned every fucking my, penny that you made over there. My dad was sure. like, I was coming back to school and playing baseball still in college. And my dad just said to me, he's just enjoy it. You don't have to work. You don't have to have a job. Enjoy it. Right. And I don't honestly regret that. For sure. Like That's awesome that your dad was. Mine yeah. was like the entire opposite. He was <laughs> like, you're an idiot. Use that money. Invest it. Go to school and all this stuff. And I was like, man. I don't want to go back to some structure again. Like, I, I just really want to enjoy myself. And I had talked to, like, my buddy Andy Harris that I had originally joined with and Josh Quick. <laughs> and Chad Quick had re-enlisted out of the four of us that originally decided to join. And we all got out at the same time. And we all made an agreement to do that. So I think we headed down to Florida for a week and living like kings and getting five-star hotels and surfing and partying. And then over to, like, California and went and found my brother who was in the Marine Corps at that time. Oh, he so he up, did join. Yeah, he yeah. ended up joining yeah. and getting to hang out with him out to like Vegas, over to Portland, like just bouncing all over the, you know, deplete twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 in three months. <laughs> <laughs> just, but just being Sounds living, completely possible. Yeah, living large, man. It was just, and it was great in yeah. everything, but and then the reality sits in when the money's out, you're like, oh man, I'm going to have to find a job, but yeah. where do I start? And so that transition's hard too. Yeah. I would basically was looking avidly to try and find a job and they were just there wasn't much out there so i ended up becoming just like a server and a bartender you know where we were with a bunch of like high school college kids nobody has any ideas like the person that is like in charge of you like your managers has never been in those situations and it's just really hard to feel like there's anyone that you can really rely on you have like your coworkers. And you talk about odds and ends here, but that's like not a support system. And once you're off work, it's not like you're hanging out or doing anything together. And all too quickly found myself just getting into the same nonsense. I was staying up late. I was drinking and partying and, and getting into bar fights and stuff. And there was this one situation where I was like in Laba and got into a scuffle and kicked out of a place and the cops were called and then took the police on the two-hour, like, foot chase, like, running, <laughs> running around. Yeah, it was, I never heard this story. Yeah. <laughs> You're saving the best stuff for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was pretty crazy, you know. Wow. <laughs> they you caught know, you eventually. They, they did, yeah. You know. I managed to get tasered twice and <laughs> hit a police officer, and, yeah. you know, I was, like, intoxicated. and We don't know. advocate for that, by yeah, the way. <laughs> exactly. No, by no means following those footsteps. Yeah, but yeah. I just remember talking crap to 
to the police officer, like, you know, you think you're bad, you know, why don't you go join the military? <laughs> like, all this stuff. The worst part about it is take off your gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fight me man to man. <laughs> yeah, be a man about it. <laughs> and the worst part about it too is this foot chase, I was all over the hillsides. I was tubing the river out there. I was drinking and I've been swimming the river and yeah. I would get out and I was making a run for it and got hit with a taser and it like toppled back down this valley into the river. Oh man. And they had quit tasing me. So I just ripped the prongs out of my back and just started swimming down this river. And this went on for a while and I got out and there's, by this point, there's 20 officers there. Like, you got the SWAT like team out there. Michael Phelps out there going to out swim and they're just like walking down the banks with their flashlights on me. Like, Come on, dude. Come on. Like, give it up. You're going to have to get out Don't at some point. get in the water, dude. Come on. And by, I'm like exhausted and I get out and I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. I put my hands up. They shoot me with a taser again. I guess they weren't taking any chances at that point, <laughs> which gets me all fired back up. So now I'm like fighting with 20 police officers on my back. And the worst part about it is like the ambulance gets called anytime somebody's tasered, they need to evaluate your health condition and stuff. <laughs> it's my dad. Uh, who's, he's sitting there watching his son be a menace to society. <laughs> like, <laughs> just shaking his head like, holy hell, what have I done? <laughs> and I think it was after that point, And I got super, super lucky because the judge like pretty much dismissed everything. Wow. He was like, you you just got back from deployment, multiple deployments. You've served your country. And the way I see it, like getting tasered twice is, is punishment enough in mm. my eyes. Like $300 fine. You're free to go. Like shape, shape your ass up. Where was that guy in high school? I know. That's what I said. I was like, you go straight guess. back to class. Right. I know. Looking at it, I guess I'm glad it was flipped. Getting kicked yeah. out of high school as opposed to like the obstruction and delay of police and striking an officer. And, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. all that. Because yeah. at first I told him guilty. Yeah. Like uh, I sat in front of this judge in jail through a camera and it's like, how do you plead? And I was like, guilty. It's pretty mm -hmm. obvious. And he's like, if you were to plead guilty to all these charges, you'd give you like a minimum. You're about two years incarcerated. And so he's like, you're going to plead not guilty. You're going to go down there. You're going to wait to see the actual judge. Mm. So I took his advice. And luckily enough, and, and the, the judge, Carnaroli, it's crazy. He actually plays a role. He does a, a veterans court project for vets that have got, just gotten out that have gotten into trouble to get things expunged off their records that they go through like this certain program. And now we work hand in hand. But yeah, so it was really that point that I was like, Damn, I'm just going right back to where I was at. I'm not making something of myself anymore. Like now I'm just out there staying up late and, and making piss poor decisions. And yeah, I thought back, I need to re-gear myself and dedicate myself towards something. And still had a year and a half to burn of the two years I told myself. And honestly, I just looked back at my past and some of the things that I used to do prior to the military was like my family and stuff. And that was always like the outdoors. And so basically... It was whitewater kayaking. Like, I loved kayaking. I loved being in the boat. I loved being on the river. And it just gives you a sense of a purpose, a reason to get up every night or every morning. Go to bed early so you can get up early and get on the river with, like, your friends and stuff. And that was probably, like, the, the moment that really defined in, in motion everything that I had planned on. Because there's that mental trigger, for sure, when you get out and you're transitioning. And I think everybody... I've talked about that with many people now, but that lack of purpose right. going from 100 miles an hour to zero, you have everything laid out for you every single day. Your structure is right, right. there in an infantry company. Yeah. You know what you're doing. And then all of a sudden you go from this extreme amount of purpose in everything you're doing, even if you right. question that purpose sometimes. For sure. It's still there right in front of you. And then you go back to into civilian society and it's, what am I even good at? Right. 
Yeah, you I mean, lose all that. You had such like a sense of pride being in the military. You truly felt like you were doing something that a lot of people would choose never to do. And, and also hopefully serving a purpose and changing the course of history to, like you said, and just no guidance, nowhere to go, no, no real purpose or, or what to do next with your life is super hard. And you just went for five years of living every day, not knowing if you're going to make it another week to to coming back with no action, no intensity. And I think that that's why so often you see soldiers getting into trouble immediately after getting out. You still want that, that sense of rush and it is almost ingrained in you. And I spent a long time trying to flush it out and figure out a different idea before I finally realized like, this is who I am and I operate well under pressure. I was trying to figure out how to get more involved in kayaking. I'd seen a video where people were like going off like huge waterfalls and stuff and had no idea that was even possible and just having to be talking about it at this social gathering and there was another guy there named davis gove and he was an elite paddler he went through world class he was having the same issue nobody you know there's not a whole lot of kayakers that really want to take it to that that insane insane level and so we had gotten together and i remember the first time we went to to kayak like a big waterfall like my first big waterfall um and it's this double drop on the left side that's like a 30 footer into a 40 footer and then if you run the right side, it's like a huge 80 footer. And being my first time, I opted for the left route. And just remember like running this waterfall when I first showed up, you're just like nervous. Should I even do this? Or should I walk the hell away? And finally, you know, like you just, it just clicks. Your mentality changes and you're like, I'm going to fire it up. I got the right people surrounding me that if, if any time's good, it's now. Yeah. And I remember like running the waterfall and rolling up at the bottom and just being like, just like this crazy like unexplainable experience, like in combat, when you get out of a huge firefight and everybody's good and, and the, it's over and you're going back and you just feel like this, this crazy, like bliss of man, I can't believe I just made it through that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I set safety down below the falls and Davis was running the right side, uh, of it and watched him go over. There's like a reconnect shelf that you're supposed to just like skip off of. He just planted right on it, flipped over on his head. His boat comes up and I get to his boat. He's not in it. And I'm looking around, holy shit, like, where is he? If he's still underwater, we're losing valuable seconds here. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he pops up and he's, I broke my back. I broke my back. And instantly from a huge high to a holy shit, action needs to be taken. Like it was just so similar to the military. Mm -hmm. You can be on an all-time high and find yourself in an all-time low really quickly and the, the four people that we had showed up there to do it with, everybody like just mobilized so quickly. Something had to be done. Got him out of the water, got him back in his boat, splinted him up. There was no way to hike back out without risking the possibility of him potentially becoming paralyzed. Tethered him, made a makeshift splint, had two guys like stabilize him and then tethered the back of my boat to the front of his and just started making our way downstream. The other guy hiked out to get the truck, to drive down to the nearest bridge, was able to navigate him down there, get him to the hospital. And everything, you know, worked out. But it was that moment that I was like, this is what I need. Mm -hmm. Seeing that and seeing that type of friendship, those types of bonds and that support, all that mobilized that quickly when a situation goes really bad and everybody comes into play to, to mitigate everything as much as possible was like, Dude, this is like the military and these are people I can trust with my life. And the rivers, purpose and camaraderie, you, you find that again yeah. right there. Exactly. The river's your battlefield and you have like your planned route of how you want to navigate down the river. But just like in combat, shit can go south really quick and 
leave you hanging on with nothing but your friends to ultimately act to save your life, even if that requires them potentially risking theirs to get you out of that situation. And once that was established, it was just huge. Even like these crazy expeditions and stuff, just if somebody didn't bring enough water or enough food, you quickly realized everybody's going with a little less water and a little less food. It was never like, oh, should have planned better. And you're going to be really sucking this whole five days. (laughs) So like seeing that was huge. The outdoor industry. Did you shoot that? I want to, before you go on, did you shoot that 80 footer? Did you? I, you done I it? did uh, three months ago. <laughs> yeah. I had of course to you did. You saw a guy break his back and you're yeah. like, oh yeah, let me try that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to redeem that one for Davis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I ended up eventually. How yeah, was that? Then, did you get, how was that rush? It was pretty gnarly for sure. I don't know if I'd ever do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I know that yeah. you saying that tells me that was terrifying yeah it was it was pretty heavy the flows were super high and that's basically what you want soften it up a little bit on impact it clears that shelf about halfway down that you skip off of and yeah just figured if it's like it seems like the best day and i've i've went back to that waterfall probably four or five times thinking today's the day i'm gonna run that right side and mm. every time i got there it was just like i'm not <laughs> that looks so bad because it just lands in like this walled in like huge boily like crazy turbulent water oh, wow. and if it kicks you like the wrong way you legitimately will land on like rock below and if it if you get too far left you can go into this siphon crack where all the water is going but a boat wouldn't fit through yeah and yeah i was legitimately just one day i was going there with a handful of the veterans that i knew that paddled and decided like that like with no intentions of running but that day it was just Showing yeah. off for the team. <laughs> <laughs> I like anything, go with your gut instinct. Yeah. If it feels wrong, you know, don't push it. But that day, it just I was speaking to me and I was like, today's a day. There is that adrenaline, there is that interesting time type of theory where, you know, Alex Honnold talks about that. How he right. would step, he'd step away from a cliff face 10 times. Right. Maybe take him a year or two years to get to where he finally was like, okay, now it's, it's right now. I feel it. For sure. And, and even then being okay, probably with getting like halfway up and going, eh. Yeah. I need to go today back down. Today's not the day. Yeah, yeah. today's not the day. And I'm sure you experienced that. Right. I think in the military, you can really tune into that. To always go with your gut instinct. I'm a firm believer of that. If something's trying to tell you somewhere deep inside you that not to do it, it's probably best. <laughs> you know, that you, that you walk away. Um, you do you do all these things though. I mean, yeah. I've seen your ski videos and what you and hitting those hills and stuff. It's insane, even, you know, even some of the tricks you're pulling and stuff and the backflips and all this kind of wild stuff. You like all of these sports, right? Is it, it that same thing? Is it that adrenaline? You're you're free climbing up cliffs, doing all kinds of crazy things. I saw you in the men's health and fitness. It was Men's Health and Fitness. Yeah, that Health, that yeah. photo shoot, Men's Health, yeah. out in Vegas, out near Vegas. And yeah. all of these things, like you like all of these extremes. Right. And I would definitely agree with that for sure. Like I said, I like being able to push the body and the mind. I think that it's, it, and aside from that, there's just so many therapeutic aspects of the outdoors and the, and the amount that it has to heal. But through kayaking and the rivers get low and you have to find something else. And luckily these people are, are multi-sport athletes and they're like, oh, dude, I got a bunch of extra rock climbing gear. So pretty soon you're doing that. And then it rains so you can't climb. And they're like, dude, I got an extra mountain bike. So pretty soon you're dabbling in that to skiing. You got to just find something that's perfect for any type of conditions that, that like I said, gives you that, that sense of purpose, that, that reason to wake up in the morning and pushing the boundaries. I feel like it's just a weird thing to try and describe to anybody is it's you just feel more alive mm-hmm. 
ultimately all around than you ever, than you do with no, nothing to, no, no reason to try and be fit, no reason to try and learn new things and, and, and gain intelligence and stuff like that. You know, it's just so easy for guys to get out and follow the money and leave their whole background and, and just go get a job and work a nine to five and repeat the same thing every single day and slowly just become more and more of a recluse like a lot of veterans do. And, and I think it is basically that you lose that structure, you lose that support system, you lose that drive to want to be better in some form or way. Instead, you just play the same day over and over again. And like you're just punching the up. clock. Right. We just talked about this with my buddy, Micah Fink from Heroes and Horses on the way over. A zero one, zero one, mm. day in, day out, day in. And essentially, you're already dead. Right. Or you're not finding that purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like a factory line. Do the exact same thing every single day. And if you don't have something that you're extremely dedicated to, it's like, what is the point of grinding? Yeah. If you know that when the weekend comes and you're off work, you're getting together with some of your best friends and you're going to rip some mountain bikes and, and stuff like that and push the boundaries. It gives you a reason to continue to go through all that stuff. Mm -hmm a reason to grind through, you know, like works, not fun. They wouldn't pay you if it was. That's a good point. But, but yeah, like all of those, it was awesome. Like I started gaining sponsors from various companies and getting paid and then funding my entire travels to go to like places like, you know, New Zealand and Chile down in South America and Thailand and all these like beautiful like places to kayak crazy whitewater, compose films about it and take pictures. And it just totally changed the chapter of my life. Like seeing countries that aren't third world destroyed war-torn environments to like beautiful like countries with different different people living simple lives and just being totally happy in the moment was just massive and I met a handful of veterans through there they were great in the outdoors and we had always talked like a veteran if more veterans could find like the same thing it would drastically help with mental health specifically and that was something that kind of like really registered with me and, and figured that's like not a bad idea. So I started like a Facebook campaign probably back in like 2014 that, that basically was just highlighting veterans that were extreme athletes in a high echelon in hopes that it would inspire other vets to, to see it and get eager about getting involved. And it was right around that time frame. Chad Cook had just gotten out of the military after the rest of us all did. And he came back home and I was living out in Missoula, Montana at the time. And he was struggling, but he was always like a huge advocate, loved like going out rafting and being able to get outdoors and knew like the whole idea behind the PTSD veteran athletes movement that I was trying to create and a huge advocate, but he was going through some serious stuff in life. And I told him to move out there, told him we had a spare room to bring himself out. He didn't know if his car would make it. And I said, I can come pick you up and drive you back out. And he's all, I'm just going to borrow my dad's truck. I'll see you tomorrow. And so I was like, this is, that's awesome. Good. Because I think the best thing that he needed was to get away from a toxic environment. And so I waited all day, like waiting for him and, and didn't try to call him, didn't hear from him. Started to wonder if maybe he drove his car and it had broke down. There's like a stretch between Idaho and up in Montana that there's no man's land. No cell I've seen a few anything. sections yeah. of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd be um, in trouble caught out there. Yeah. And so I decided, I was like, I'm going to just drive all the way back to Pocatello. They're like a slow speed trying to look on the other side of the freeway for any like cars that are broke down and drove, didn't see anything, get back home, try to call him again. I, you know, took a stroll by his house, knocked on the door. Nobody was there. His girlfriend had called me 
and was like, you know, I'm worried about Chad. And she was part of the problem. <laughs> so I was not very friendly. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, maybe you should just leave him alone. She's she like, it's one thing for him to ignore my phone calls, but he never ignores yours or his dad's. She's like, I'm going to have the police go check in on him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whatever, you're crazy. Yeah. Do whatever you want. And a bunch of my buddies and me were going up hiking and had just got back from this hike and his dad called me and yeah, the police went there and broke down the door and he was, he had hung himself in his house. And I think that was kind of like a huge hit. I quickly realized that an awareness campaign isn't doing enough like this. You might be able to like instruct a veteran to see something to where he gets engaged in it, but I decided like it was time to take it like a step further than that. And so utilizing everything that I had experienced after getting out of the military and knowing the transitions and some of the more difficult aspects of getting involved in these sports, like where do you meet people? And a lot of that gear is extremely expensive, you know, was definitely one of the biggest things. So I started hitting up all my buddies that I had served with and guys that I knew were suffering from PTSD and, and, and some of the issues that they were having and asking them why they would have never got involved. And that was primarily the two things is one where do I go to learn this? Mm-hmm. Cause it's not like the city softball team. You don't just sign up and meet other people that do it and be able <laughs> drink to drink a few beers, yeah, call it a night yeah. Yeah, and start making friends. And, and it's simple to, to figure it out. And then financially, like a lot of these guys just didn't have a financial money to buy a, a three, $4,000 mountain bike and helmet and gloves and, and knee and elbow pads and, and all that stuff. And so that was, uh, kind of right at the time where I realized if I can do something to pretty much mitigate those issues, we could really provide veterans that opportunity to change their lives. Yeah. But I had no idea like <laughs> what it required to, to start a nonprofit, but had the ground game of like how I was going to go about it. And like I said, I was still bartending at this place and it's called the Sandpiper and it's like a high-end bar and grill. It's and, a cool spot. Yeah, yeah. And it's got some, some wealthy individuals that come through there regularly. And I've always spoke about what I was trying to do. And one day this, this gentleman named Garn Theobald was sitting there and I poured him his drink, knew it off the top of my head, went to pour his wife. He's like, oh no, 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 she's not coming. I came here just to talk to you. And I was just like, oh, okay, what's up? And he's, I know what you're trying to do and I want to help you do it. And it was just like, oh yeah, I'm sure. I've heard this from every person that was like trying to make a statement about how wealthy they are and how powerful they are and can change your, your life overnight. Uh-huh. I was just like, yeah, okay, sure. And he's like, I'm dead serious. He's like, if you can provide me with a business plan, like I will help you form that business. So I started looking into everything that's like required and you got to create a board. And I hit up all my buddies that knew Chad really well and that we'd grown up with in the outdoors and all had a variable skill set that, that could benefit the, the program that we were trying to launch. And so with those the three of them and myself, we put together like a really in-depth business plan, which was getting some used to. Like mm-hmm. I'd never done that before. So that took a while to, to figure out how to do that. But got this in-depth business plan put together, gave him a call and told him I have it. He's cool. We'll swing by and we'll take a look over it. And I didn't realize at the time he was the owner of R- a place called RNG Potatoes. And they're like the largest distributor of of spuds, like in, the, in North America. <laughs> the right business. Yeah. yeah. And so they were huge and, and extremely uh, well off. And this guy pretty much aimed at helping anybody that he could. He didn't, he's not the type that he wanted to like flirt his money around and, and be yeah. like, oh, look at me. He was just a down to earth farmer that built an empire out of it and, and was looking to help anybody and everybody that had, he's helped out not only this nonprofit, but so many 
other small businesses get started with with things that your bank would never give you a loan for. Wow. He took a look over it and was like, that's awesome. Meet me back here at eight in the morning and jumped in with him. He drove me over to like his accounting, you know, team and was like, anything that this guy needs, we want to speed this process up as fast as possible. Any paperwork, anything that we got to do, get it done and no bills go to him. They all come to me. I did the same thing with like his attorneys, his business advisors and everything along those guidelines. Because it takes, yeah, the startup for a nonprofit is, is overwhelming. It's no wonder why a lot of them struggle, especially getting taken, getting to a point where you can actually start pursuing your mission. Yeah. And so that was huge. Like I had this team of board members, but nobody's an attorney. Nobody can write these bylaws. Like we didn't have somebody that understood the 501c3 registration papers and some of the terms and, and stuff, that, the questions that they have. And you're like, I don't even know what this means. Like, yeah. somebody break this down to me into an infantryman's terms. Am I going to get in trouble if I fill this out wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. If they, and there's a lot of things that are on there that you don't know if you will eventually do. Yeah. Like how you're going to solicit donations and stuff like that. Like uh, all has to be like clarified. And you're like, all right now, like we, we have no idea we're going to do that. And so, yeah, we finally got that done. And then you got to wait for the IRS who they love to take like their sweet time. But you can have everything <laughs> they in do? the right place. <laughs> so it's like eagerly waiting and waiting. And by this point, I had already had another buddy take his life. Oh, geez. Um, from the military and was just like getting a little flustered and stuff. And his mom had already always, she was like, oh man, this would have been like perfect, like right up his alley. Like that's his niche. And, and which I think it took two or three months to finally get our approval, our determination on that we're a 501c3 and how we're going to be able to go about our operating. And so it's all done. And I'm like, oh shit. Like now I got to put this into motion. And that was hard because it requires a good amount of money and where's it going to come from? So going from there, I mean, how did, you know, how do you figure that out? And, you know, and you, now you've got this budding nonprofit where you're taking guys out on these incredible trips, but not just one-stop shops where you're like, Hey, had a good time uh, snowboarding. If you like snowboarding, go ahead and pursue it. Like you're giving guys continual opportunities to pursue this, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We started off like kicking around on the funding, but like I said, that Garn guy, he's, him and his wife have just been huge. They're like, what do you need? For the first year, took a checkbook right out of their back pocket, wrote a large check and yeah. gave it to us to start getting the ball in motion. But yeah, so basically, you know, what we do, it, it, we took PTSD and turned it into professional transformation sports development. Or if you go on our like website, it's ptsdveteranathletes.com. And so as a veteran, you can jump online and register. And so we offer four classes, rock climbing, skiing and snowboarding mountain biking and whitewater kayaking. And so once you've registered, you pick the sport that you're most interested in. It's a simple, super easy process and everything is fully funded after that. Once we have all these guys registered for a certain class, we pretty much just send you an email telling you, hey, these are the dates. Are you available? And if so, from there, we book their flights. We get their accommodations set up. By the time they get here, we outfit them in brand new top of the line gear, get them situated. And from there forward, we have, we have them here for two weeks and teach them from knowing nothing about it to being fully proficient at it. Mm -hmm. Not just like an escape. Here, let's go kayaking. Hope you guys had a good time. See you later. Yeah. Because, yeah, in my mind, giving somebody a glimpse into a better lifestyle isn't necessarily doing much good for them 
when they get back home and don't have any means to be able to continue to do it, it almost puts you in a worse position than you started with. So we didn't just want to provide an outing. Those guys still come back and take their own lives. Right, exactly. And so so that was like, like we said in the very beginning, it's all about being able to know what you're doing, having the knowledge to do it and the tools to continually pursue it. And it is always difficult having people here for two weeks because that is a lot of time. It is requiring a good amount of like your life to drop out of it. But we didn't want to give somebody the tools to be able to kill themselves on accident. It's not like here's some climbing gear. Like, best of luck to you. Hopefully you don't fall off of a cliffside. We wanted to make sure that, like, you are dialed and proficient at what you're doing. And therefore, you can go and meet other people from wherever you came from that are also engaged in that sport. Similar to how I got back into kayaking. It was definitely a struggle meeting those people and and then didn't have all the gear. But the outdoor community is just so supportive. Which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a blast for like the two weeks too. People that come out of here, it's not like we just are just skiing or kayaking like the entire day. I mean, we're out camping around a campfire. We go out to, you know, various areas in the community. We do everything from mini golf to bowling to soaking up hot pools and off time. And it's just a blast. Pretty much eat, shred, relax, party, <laughs> go to sleep and get up and get to do it all again the next day and so sounds like a good time to me <laughs> yeah dude it's been incredible for sure it's it's been life-changing for a lot of people it's super rewarding seeing people make the same transition that i did when getting letters from wives and daughters being like my husband i don't know what you did in those two weeks we finally got our dad back mm. he's actually smiling he's excited like you were going out camping he bought us all mountain bikes now we're all mountain biking can't thank you enough and then just the amount of bets that we've came through that was like if i wasn't if it wasn't for this, like I was well on my way. Like I, I was on the verge of taking my own life and this just wow. has totally redirected my life in a different sense and, and gave me something to look forward to and get involved in and, and, and really pursue. And so it's just been outstanding just to see at first when you launch something like this, you know, is this just going to work for me? There's no way to know if you're going to start something that really just doesn't work. It's, There's it's, no it's test track for between. it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's been completely tossed out the window at this point. I've seen so many people and we have like guys that are mountain biking high up or echelon races all around the country, different countries, like people climbing some of these cliff faces that I would never do, you know, like (laughs) really taking the sport and progressing with it and meeting like their own crew and their own support system. And you just have such a better way at really getting those types of connections across when everybody is driven towards one common goal, but you really do require other people to do it with you. But when you are out kayaking in this river, there's no cell phones, there's no TV, there's no distractions. And then you're all camping together and talking about all your experiences that day and being able to let loose. That's where those bonds are really formed. You you completely disable like those distractions and people get together and you're around a campfire and, and real topics of discussion can come up and veterans can talk about their experiences and you're meeting other people that are struggling with the same things that you've been struggling with and finding that same passion that gives you like a purpose to continually get together and form the foundation of a real long lasting friendship that isn't just somebody on the weekend every once in a while, you know, yeah. these are people that you start going out together, getting your families together, planning camping trips together. And so it's just been, it's been awesome to see it take off, grow and hear back from all these veterans. And we keep in contact with everybody. we got like a massive chat board so we can plan expeditions together and they can be like we're going to drop down to moab and go mountain biking from these states to these states and then just see people cross country just to get there meet back up and be able to go rip some bikes for three days and 
it's been awesome. Yeah. I was just telling my president about Moab, speaking of what an amazing, because he's never been, he's never seen it. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. It's pretty incredible out there, especially yeah. biking and climbing. And just even some of those side hikes that are out there in that area. That's beautiful. It's like incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you're doing such an incredible thing, Russ, with this. And it's so imperative. That communal passion that you talked about on purpose, finding that again, you're bringing that back to these guys. And it, even a more positive environment than your unit, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> not getting blasted by your first sergeant on Friday. Hey, we're going to hold you over the right. weekend. We're going into the field, boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not like a <laughs> Now I want to end my life. life. <laughs> yeah. Everything's kind of done at your own pace and yeah. stuff. Like, you're only, like we said, you're only as slow as, you're as fast as your slowest guy. And, yeah. And so everybody just... It's so cool just to see it. I mean, we have guys that come back from four years ago, five years ago. They took the first skiing snowboarding class and they will be here every two weeks to help instruct, help show other veterans, make new friends and continue to broaden their horizon on like their own like circle of people and stuff. And so, yeah, it, it's really awesome. We don't push people past their boundaries. It's just cool to see like the outdoor community who's super supportive of our cause, who really help. I mean, we have people that, you know, have never served in the military, but are in, incredible athletes and that'll come out here and designate their time just to show other people how to be proficient at the sports. It's kind of eye-opening to see how similar like the outdoor community is to, to a lot of the military like oriented kind of same mentalities. Yeah. You know? I think there's like a huge, oh, all those hippies, like, <laughs> stuff like that. but these are like young I men. I thought there women. were a bunch of hippies, <laughs> yeah. but I liked that. I thought it was cool. And then I met you and I was like, yeah. oh, he's definitely not a hippie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. <laughs> but yeah, it just goes to say, I mean, the outside world and, and the civilian aspect of stuff, everybody's eager to know. Yeah. Like, there is such a know. lack of understanding between sure. all communities until you're really in that community right. and you see what a hardworking people there are in these right. extreme sports. Yeah. It's one of the gnarliest things you can do. Yeah. I say gnarly as in because it's so rough. Like yeah. it is such a hard, incredibly hard, perplexing, tough thing to put your, and it, it requires an immense amount of bravery right. to even take those first steps. For sure. I've For experienced, sure. I, I just started snowboarding the past few years and I'm like, dude, this learning curve sucks. Right. But I, yeah, you got to be prepared to yeah. fail a lot yeah. until you get it, you start getting it figured out, but you're going to have people like right alongside of you the entire time. And it, and you you quickly find that like through even some of our outdoor guides and instructors and stuff like that, you just find that they are strictly dedicated to getting you as, as good as possible. They're not there to beat you down or push you over like something that you're not capable of doing or ready for. It's a gradual progression. And then we go hang out and have a blast afterwards. It's just an awesome like lifestyle. And I think it's good. It's good for them. It's good for the vets. They get an understanding of some of the things and the crazy situations that they've been through. And the vets also get an understanding that those people on the outside, they do understand and there is compassion there and they do want to help in any way and that you can trust them with their life. Like one way or another, if you're going to climb a couple hundred foot cliff, that guy belaying you without a doubt has your life in their hands. So it quickly breaks down. Oh, you can't trust the civilians. They don't know to, to forming that structure of, I can really trust this guy with my life 100%, not yeah. serving next to each other or anything, but to really meet those people that you trust beyond anything that you'd put your life in their hands and vice versa. That's awesome. It's been awesome having you on, Russ, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Where, where do we find you guys at? You mentioned the website. But yeah. if you can run that back and then Instagram, Facebook, right? For sure. Yeah. Instagram, Facebook, and our website's all the same. PTSD, veteran 
com or ptsdva.com okay or veteranathletes.com we got all three of them all linked there so like smart any, man any way that you can buy these domains yeah. up try and figure yeah you are owning the empire well, you said you didn't but you can still own it right <laughs> that was like i know as an infantryman ptsd veteran athletes i don't know how to spell the last two and that's way too long so yeah. <laughs> it's gonna take me like 40 seconds to find the keys to punch in ptsd i don't know i'm gonna athletes. use these knuckles on this keyboard yeah. to get there yeah exactly so it's like ah ptsd VA, that's simple. Yeah. Veteran athletes, I think I could probably remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As many times as I've been hit in the head, yeah, I'll figure it out. They're like me. They'll get it. They'll yeah. get it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. I really appreciate you coming on, Russ. You're always an inspiration be having you around and wanting to make an impact and not just the awareness spaces, everything that we're about. So it's great to talk to a guy that gets it. And uh, we appreciate you, man. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate you guys. Like I said, huge uh, supporters of what you guys do and think you guys are absolutely crushing it. So, it's honestly a pleasure just to be here. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it's been a good time. I always like Pocatello. It's an awesome place. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. For sure. Let's go get rowdy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So thanks to all of you who've been listening. We appreciate you. And most of all, don't forget, our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.